This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is episode 227 of the program. Today is Friday, January 31st, and by the time most of you see this, it will be February 3rd, which means that the Iowa caucus is tonight. So we have a lot of news to talk about, but just know that the 2020 election is heating up, and that's what will be our focus for this episode. But before we get to that, I want to take some time to thank all of our newest Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members, all of which signed up for the very first time to support us this week. And that includes 971, Adam Crane Guilford, Anand Malik, Ben Anderson, Cesar Seguencia, Chris Roberts, Craig D, Daniel Kohler, Dan Page, Don Kiger, Dwayne, Eric Haddad, Grammy Bernie Bro, Harvey Thornton, Jay, Lee Baker, Leo Finarell, Lindsay Lismore, Marco Campanoni, Melon Robotics, Michael Matean Aziz, Nancy Kurtz, Paul Shipper, Paul Vega, Rosemary Seragino, Sam Hahn, Sean A., Thomas Lawrence Williams, and VBIT. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the show and join the independent progressive media revolution, you can do so by going to humanistreport.com support or patreon.com slash humanistreport. Or as always, you can also just click join underneath any one of our YouTube videos and become a member here on YouTube and get access to our videos uh, most of the time the night before they air, but also sometimes we'll put them up a couple days early if we can get them edited in time. So uh, this week on the Humanist Report podcast, Bernie Sanders' surge continues, which means the establishment is in full-on panic mode, and Democratic operatives are now trying to form a campaign to stop his momentum, and the first ad buy against Bernie Sanders is running, and it's backfiring pretty spectacularly. Spectacularly. We'll talk about that. Also, Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar attack Bernie Sanders' electability as he surges, and they're claiming that they're best positioned to beat Donald Trump. Democratic Party loyalists use Joe Rogan's support for Bernie to smear him. Chris Matthews rethinks a smear of Bernie Sanders he tried to make. Leaked audio reveals that Donald Trump is afraid to run against Bernie Sanders. Joe Biden has another meltdown when a voter confronts him about his record on climate change. And speaking of Joe Biden's record, we'll look to an old video of him that shows how he has a history of being a liar. Not just that, a serial plagiarist. We'll talk about why he's not the most electable candidate, according to Michael Moore. Mike Bloomberg tries to convince us that he is, in fact, a human being and not a robot. Not very persuasive. We'll talk about the DNC's latest round of shenanigans. And Joe Biden tells you that you shouldn't vote for him. Finally, on the show, we'll close out by talking to six 2020 congressional candidates from across the country who we previously brought on the show, and they're going to give us updates on their campaigns. So that's what we've got on the agenda for today's show. Hopefully you guys will enjoy it. Let's go ahead and get right to it. The extent to which Bernie Sanders is surging, it is truly remarkable. And as someone who has been advocating for the policies that Bernie Sanders is pushing for years now... I mean, it doesn't feel real. Like, it feels like we're in the twilight zone or this is a dream and we're going to wake up. But this is very real. Bernie Sanders, 
may win the Democratic Party nomination. And just to really point out how much he's surged since the last time we talked about polls on this show, uh, first of all, he's closing the gap between him and Joe Biden nationally. He has surged past Joe Biden in Iowa and is now multiple points ahead of him overall, when just last week he was down four points in Iowa. And in New Hampshire, he's now eight points ahead of Joe Biden overall. And we've officially reached the point where mainstream media can't pretend that Bernie Sanders isn't surging. They can't pretend like if they ignore him, he's going to go away because Bernie Sanders may very well be unstoppable. And to show you the sense that the mainstream media is getting, I want to play a clip from CNN where Henry Enten, previously from 538, talks about Bernie's numbers. And um, I think this communicates that they realize something is happening. And if he wins Iowa and New Hampshire, he may be unstoppable. All right. In terms of the Democratic primary, yes. there is more polling, more signs that things are going well for Bernie Sanders. Th things are going very, very well for Bernie Sanders. Look at this. In New Hampshire, the, sec the second contest, the first primary, look at this. Now he's up to 29%, clearly leading the field. That's up 14, 14 points. That is a surge going way, way up there. In Iowa, take a look here. You know, the average of the last CNN poll, the Monmouth U poll, what do we see? Bernie Sanders up five points. Pete Buttigieg going down into the basement in Iowa, falling down, falling through the cracks. So it's another early state. You win Iowa and you win New Hampshire, that's a very tough train to really stop. And we also see it, we spoke about it yesterday, nationally, from late October in Harry's average, up from 16% in late October, up to 21% now. So Iowa, New Hampshire, Iowa, Bernie Sanders up in all of them. And that, my friends, is a sign of a surge. Something is happening in the Democratic primary. That is the only CNN clip that I think I've ever watched that genuinely made me smile. And it's not because I think that Henry Anton is some Bernie bro who's a fan of Bernie Sanders, but he acknowledges that something really unique and possibly historical is happening right now. And even since that video came out where they acknowledged that Bernie Sanders is surging, even more polls show that he's doing better than that. MSNBC discusses how he's now taken the lead nationally among non-white voters, surpassing Joe Biden. He's now leading in California, according to a new poll. And in one poll from New Hampshire, he is literally the only candidate who reaches that 15% viability threshold to win any pledged delegates. Now, this poll from Emerson found him nine points ahead of Biden, and he is only one of two candidates to reach double-digit support from voters under 50. And on top of that, he has the most enthusiastic base of support, which is going to matter the most going into these caucus states. Now, it's funny because that Emerson poll came out Sunday evening, and then expectedly the very next day, we saw a barrage of articles basically attacking Bernie Sanders or describing how the establishment now really, really wants to defeat Bernie Sanders and that they are shaking in their boots officially. For example, from Politico, quote, they let him get away with murder. Dems tormented over how to stop Bernie. From CNN, Bernie Sanders surge rattles establishment Democrats one week from Iowa. From the Daily Beast, worried Democratic operatives scramble to fund a network to take down Bernie Sanders. From The Atlantic, 
Bernie Can't Win, written by neocon David Frum, who worked for George W. Bush and supported the Iraq War. From the New York Times, Bernie Sanders and his internet army. At the start of his 2020 bid, the Vermont senator told his supporters that he condemned bullying. Is it his problem if many don't seem to listen? So, I mean, they're grasping at straws here, trying to attack Bernie left and right, trying to find old videos to show that Bernie Sanders isn't as consistent as he used to be, and resorting to the old Bernie bro smear because, I mean, they've got nothing else. They're throwing everything to the wall in order to see what sticks, and quite frankly, I am enjoying this, um, but we haven't even gotten to the ugliest attacks yet. Because from the Washington Post, they tweeted out this article, Perspective anti-Semites see socialism as a Jewish plot. What will they say about Bernie Sanders? Now, when you click on the article, it talks about how Bernie Sanders may soon have to confront this myth, you know, because the media won't confront it for him. He's going to have to confront it. And from The Economist, the Vermont Senator's campaign slogan used to be a future to believe in. Now it's just Bernie. And that's obviously wrong because this slogan is not me, us. But look at this picture. Does that look like they're trying to prime you to think about him in any particular way? I mean, considering the fact that he's Jewish. I mean, what does that remind you of? Oh, right. It's the anti-Semitic caricature. So they are going after him guns blazing. And I promise you, if he does emerge victorious in Iowa and New Hampshire, these attacks that we're seeing will quadruple at a minimum. Now, to kind of give you the quick rundown of all of these articles, because we can't possibly read all of them, essentially, most establishment figures like Rahm Emanuel, Matt Bennett from Third Way, they feel as if the media hasn't been uh, vetting Bernie enough, if you could imagine that, when he's been relentlessly smeared from the media when he is covered and they're not just ignoring him completely. But on top of that, the establishment kind of feels like they're stuck, you know, in this Catch-22 where... If they don't do anything to stop Bernie Sanders, if they don't attack him, then he could just run away with the nomination. But on the other hand, if they attack Bernie Sanders, they realize that, you know, that's a dangerous game to play because it's going to galvanize his support and we're going to donate. We're going to support him even more, which we will. So they don't know what to do. They're stuck, you know, in this place where if they attack him, they help him. But if they don't attack him, they help him and they feel hopeless in the situation. Hence why they're tormented, which I just... um which I love. And on top of that, they're concerned trolling about electability as Joe Biden loses his mind on reporters and, you know, people showing up to town hall events. They're trying to bring out every single argument imaginable to make sure that Bernie Sanders is defeated. But here's the thing. It may be too late for them, but here's why whenever Bernie Sanders does well in polls, people like myself, Kyle Kalinske, David Dole caution you to not let your foot off the brakes, right? Because Here's the thing. In these types of caucus states, we're getting dangerously close to Bernie Sanders being the only candidate who is viable. And if their candidates, let's say in Iowa, for example, doesn't reach that 15% threshold, let's say uh, Pete Buttigieg doesn't hit 15%, his supporters then have the chance to caucus for Joe Biden, which could give Joe Biden the edge. So this is why when we say the better Bernie Sanders does, the harder we have to fight, because... Every single thing that we can imagine that will be thrown at us will be thrown at us and more. So we can't just eke out a victory. We have to beat Joe Biden and every other Democrat by a wide margin because we have to change and control the narrative. If Bernie wins Iowa and New Hampshire, imagine what that will do in terms of narrative control right? Then that will give him momentum going into Nevada. And what I'm expecting is 
if Bernie Sanders truly does win Iowa and New Hampshire, that's certainly a possibility. Um, the minute anyone but Bernie wins a primary, the media and the Democratic Party establishment will flock to that candidate. This is what we saw back in 2016 with Donald Trump, right? They were grasping onto any candidate but Donald Trump, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, John Kasich, but it wouldn't work. But whoever wins the first post-Bernie primary, that candidate will be who the media flocks to. And in the event Bernie be becomes the nominee, it's still not over. We have to fight Donald Trump and the establishment because I don't expect them to just accept that Bernie will be the nominee, right? I expect a third party challenge from Mike Bloomberg or someone else. I expect, you know, a lot of centrist Democrats to just outright pledge support to Donald Trump. And the rationalization will be that, oh, Bernie Sanders will destroy the Democratic Party and socialism will make him lose. I mean, they're already fear mongering about socialism. So you've got to understand that we can't even anticipate all of the attacks that are coming. But what we're seeing now, I don't think it's going to affect him, but it's going to quadruple. And my overall point and what I want you to take away from this video is that as Bernie Sanders surges, we'll respond to these attacks, but overall let them roll off your shoulders. Because the problem is that when you overwhelm people with so many attacks, then they're just going to tune them out, right? It's too much. Um, they're trying everything and they're giving voters not much time to focus on any one attack for Bernie Sanders because they're scrambling and they don't know what to do. Now, here's what I want to leave you with. These were all expected. None of us had the expectation that the Democratic Party establishment would unite behind Bernie Sanders willingly. At most, we have some of them acquiesce, but they're not just going to willingly coalesce around Bernie Sanders. Um, I will truly be floored if a lot of them truly, you know, support Bernie if he's the nominee. But this was all expected. That is, that's what I want you all to realize. And I don't want you to feel too down. This is all what we anticipated. And we kind of built this in to, you know, the woodwork, right? We're anticipating possibly Obama coming out and attacking Bernie Sanders if it truly seems like he's going to run away with a nomination, which is why on Twitter I said, find every video of Obama saying nice things about Bernie and have that ready so we can share them like crazy so that way people know that these are all just politically calculated attacks and they just don't want Bernie to win because they either are expecting a job in a Biden or Buttigieg administration or because their financial interests are at stake. They don't want, you know, the health insurance industry to become non-existent because that benefits their bottom line. But this was all to be expected. And the reason why it's happening is because Bernie is the real deal. So I'll leave you with this video where Bernie Sanders explains how the reason why this is happening is because he really is the Democratic Party and the establishment in general's worst nightmare. And it's not Bernie Sanders. It's all of us, us collectively together, realizing the power that we have. That truly is their worst nightmare. Tell how good I feel by how nervous the establishment is getting. <laughs> Suddenly, Donald Trump is talking about our campaign. Suddenly, the Republican National Committee is tweeting about our campaign. Suddenly, we have the Democratic establishment very nervous about this campaign. We got Wall Street nervous. We got the insurance companies nervous. We got the drug companies nervous. We got the fossil fuel industry nervous. We got the military-industrial complex nervous. We got the prison-industrial complex nervous. 
We got billionaires going on television crying that they're going to have to start paying their fair share of taxes. And they're starting to think, could this really happen? Could there really be a political movement in America which brings together blacks and whites and Latinos and Asian Americans and Native Americans, gay and straight, to stand up as working class people fighting for change? We are their worst nightmare. I've said this once, I will say it again. The Democratic Party establishment is not just going to let Bernie Sanders march easily to the nomination. They're going to do everything that they possibly can to stop him. Now, there's an article in the Daily Beast that basically talks about how Democratic Party operatives are doing everything they can to convince other individuals, namely big donors, to create some type of coordinated campaign to attack Bernie Sanders. But the donors don't necessarily want to do that yet because I think they probably realize that this could backfire tremendously. If you attack Bernie Sanders, then we will respond by giving him more of our money. So that way he could counter these attacks. So the establishment is getting desperate. But nonetheless, Wall Street goon Steve Ratner, who is also a Democratic Party mega donor, confirmed that, yeah, um, we were right all along. There is some type of coordinated campaign to stop Bernie Sanders if he does emerge victorious in Iowa and New Hampshire. We don't necessarily know what that's going to look like. Nonetheless, it's happening. Take a look. The more that Bernie Sanders rises the more, and I see this very much now happening already among my activist Democratic friends, the more people are getting scared about a Bernie Sanders candidacy for two reasons. First, because they think he'll lose, and second, they think if he wins, he'll implement the kinds of policies uh, that I outlined a few minutes ago, which uh, are so far away from the center of the Democratic Party. So there's a lot of activity around trying to, quote, stop Bernie, although it isn't called by that just yet. And that's, uh, and, and Mike Bloomberg could well play a role in that as an alternative to, Ber uh, to Bernie Sanders. But as you also point out, for that to happen, Biden has to, in effect, not do as well as people expect, whether it's second, third, or fourth. Biden has to has to weaken in the course of these first four early primaries. If Biden wins uh, Iowa and then New Hampshire, let's say, and he's obviously strong in Nevada, strong in South Carolina, it may well be game over. So this is the least surprising news ever. We already knew that there were efforts to, to form some type of uh, group, a super PAC, something to go after Bernie Sanders because, you know, Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar, they can't necessarily go after him directly, even though they're doing that. Uh, but this kind of, you know, this damages the facade of unity that the Dem Democratic Party establishment has been trying to maintain. So you have outside groups trying to spend to defeat Bernie Sanders themselves. But again, this is a risky move because they know how enthusiastic Bernie's base is and whatever they try to throw up, any barriers that they put up to stop him, we will respond accordingly, right? So you may have some Democratic donor who bites and spends five to $10 million on ad buys to defeat Bernie Sanders. But then guess what we're gonna do? We are going to donate to Bernie Sanders in response. We donated, what, uh, what was it, $4 million after the last Democratic debate to Bernie Sanders when Elizabeth Warren was trying to smear him? Do you honestly believe that we're not going to do that again? So this is why, you know, the establishment, according to a lot of uh, articles that have been released since he's been surging more, 
they feel like they're stuck between a rock and a hard place because if they attack Bernie Sanders and go after him, they risk galvanizing his base even further. But if they do nothing, then he can very well win. So they know that they have to respond. And as Steve Ratner admits here, yeah, they're going to do just that. So um, he says there's a lot of activity around trying to stop Bernie, although it isn't called by that just yet and mike bloomberg can play a role in all of that as an alternative to bernie sanders but for that to happen biden has to not do well as people expect um so basically they're banking on joe biden joe biden is who they are throwing their weight behind but if things go south for joe biden which they very uh, well may it's mike bloomberg and what he kind of subtly hinted at is that you know what if we have to We'll run Mike Bloomberg as a third-party candidate. Now, Mike Bloomberg has stated that he is more than willing to, um, you know, support whoever the nominee is, even if it's Bernie Sanders, but I'm not so sure. I think that that's just what they want us to think currently, so that way if Bernie doesn't win, we don't feel, uh, you know, the need to not vote for them. They're going to do everything, and they're trying to think two or three steps ahead, but they don't realize that everything that they're planning we already are anticipating and we know it. And I think that even the most apolitical, non-savvy consumer of political news knows that the establishment hates Bernie Sanders. So as all of these attacks come in and stories about how the establishment is tormented about Bernie's rise, I think that this will kind of have a Trumpian effect where it only makes him more popular because it proves to people that he's the real deal, hence why moneyed interests are going after him so, you know, vociferously. Now, what this really does say is that this unity, you know, um, facade, I guess, if you want to call it that, that the establishment has been trying to put up is bullshit. It is the facade that we all thought that it was because whenever there was someone like Pete Buttigieg or Joe Biden or Elizabeth Warren who was doing great in poll after poll, we were told to unify. There was even talk that maybe Bernie Sanders should drop out and support Elizabeth Warren so, you know, we don't split the progressive vote and she's stronger and, you know, going up in a general. But now, all of a sudden, that Bernie Sanders may very well be the nominee, are they screaming unity? Of course they're not. Now we're seeing individuals like Hillary Clinton come out of hiding to attack Bernie Sanders. We see attack after attack on not just Bernie Sanders, but his supporters. We see the Bernie bro myth coming back from the New York Times where they are quoting literal online trolls to bolster their point about Bernie Sanders' army being trolls when back in 2016 reports showed that Bernie's supporters were the most docile group. They were the least aggressive online when we're comparing Democratic campaigns. Um, so I want to share an article from John Iderola of TYT. He wrote this for The Hill because he really articulates everything that I'm feeling and it exposes the establishment. Like this unity talk was a scam because that unity that they were preaching, all of a sudden we hear none of that now that Bernie may very well be the nominee. He writes, last November, reports indicated President Obama was considering speaking up to stop Bernie Sanders from becoming the Democratic presidential nominee. Leaks from just this week indicate he is once again considering doing so. Obama's former campaign manager, Jim Messina, spent this last week attacking the frontrunner as the worst candidate, defying both logic and all public polling. The one-way war between Hillary Clinton and Senator Bernie Sanders might be the ultimate example of this. Earlier this week, Hillary Clinton's latest vicious 
Trump's attacks against Sanders continued a pattern of behavior we've seen repeatedly for years. Let's briefly note that every word of Hillary Clinton's petty attack was untrue. Quote, nobody likes him. Not only do people like Senator Sanders, but he regularly polls as the most popular politician in the country. He's certainly the most popular senator. And despite the centrist war cry that he's not even a real Democrat, he has the highest favorability rating of any candidate pursuing the presidency. But I digress. Where is the unity in these constant attacks? Where is the concern that these smears will eventually weaken Bernie Sanders in the general election if he becomes the nominee? They're absent because that's not how unity works. Calls for unity silence progressive critiques. For the establishment, though, anything goes. That is exactly it. This article is perfect. I'll link to it down below. This is a scam. We are engaging in asymmetric warfare where the establishment can throw jabs at us. And if we counterpunch, even if we just defend ourselves, we are um, beaten over the head. We're told that we're being too divisive. We're being told that we're not real Democrats. We're being told to shut up and accept whatever crumbs the establishment's nominee will offer us. It is one gigantic scam. So now is the time for the so-called unity Democratic Party loyalists to put their money where their mouth is and actually live up to the expectations that they set out for us. If you genuinely believe in unity and you weren't just preaching that conveniently to get us to shut up, then preach unity now. Now that Bernie Sanders may be the nominee, preach that unity now. I will give credit to one person, of all people, Terry McAuliffe, who I'm no fan of, who's a Clinton ally, who basically responded in an article, I think it was Politico, and he said to everyone who's worried about Bernie being the nominee, get over it. We have to unite to beat Donald Trump. That's someone who I can give credit because He's practicing what he preaches. He is being, you know, genuine in his urging for unity, right? So anyone else, I'm more than willing to give credit if they are genuinely, like, wanting unity. If you speak out right now, speak out right now. Because this primary isn't over. It's not a foregone conclusion, right? We still have to work really hard to get Bernie to win. But you're hurting the effort. If you truly believe about unity, you are hurting even your eventual nominee. If Pete Buttigieg wins, God forbid... Now, when you're proving that you don't really care about unity, how are you with a straight face going to make that pitch to us? So, this is a problem with the establishment. Time and again, they show that they don't care about unity. They are incredibly disingenuous. They have a different set of standards for us that they don't apply to themselves. They claim to care about transphobia, for example, and harp on Bernie Sanders when he, you know, um, elevates the Joe Rogan endorsement, but then they embrace Hillary Clinton with open arms as she has made very transphobic statements that are harmful to the trans community. Like, everything that they say, it's all bullshit, and they're really exposing themselves as the frauds that they are. Now, we already knew that. Bernie supporters knew that they were frauds, but the problem for them is that more, you know, apolitical people, people who don't follow politics like you and I as closely, they're even realizing that the Democratic establishment is frauds. So if they truly care about beating Republicans, now is the time when they still say that they are committed to unity. Put up or shut up. We've had inklings that Donald Trump is afraid to go up against Bernie Sanders in 2020, but now we have confirmation straight from the horse's mouth that there is one candidate who frightens Donald Trump. It is Bernard Sanders. So this is what he said in leaked audio. Hey, Bernie Sanders, 
They they rigged it. Bernie Bernie would have beat Hillary in that right now. She, she, that would have been helpful. Yeah, I agree. Because there was no hatred. Right, you're right. There right. was no hatred. Millennials, right. millennials were right. Okay. I mean, she, but she, as great as he was, half my motivation in working was not let her do it. 100%. Right. Yeah. And, and that, that's why I think a big part of running as vice president would have been tougher. Yeah, uh, yeah, the the yeah Kane was what yeah. I couldn't even. But I think Bernie, you know, because all those people that hated her so much who mm -hmm. voted for me, you know, I got 20% of Bernie vote. People don't rule us up because of trade, because he's a big trade guy. You know, he basically says we're getting screwed on trade. <laughs> And he's right. I'm worse than he is. But, and we can do something about it. I don't know if he could have. But, um, had she picked Bernie Sanders, it would have been tougher. Mm -hmm. Because the only one I didn't want her to pick. Now, then you so there you have it. Donald Trump is afraid to go up against Bernie Sanders. Now, this is important because it tells us that out of all of the Democrats, Donald Trump is communicating that he doesn't necessarily know how to fight against Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders undercuts the appeal that Donald Trump has when it comes to the issue of trade. And he's saying here, the only person who he was frightened to go up against in 2016 was Hillary if Bernie were the running mate. So let's say, hypothetically speaking, that Bernie is the nominee and he's going head to head against Bernie Sanders, not as a running mate, but as a direct competitor. Donald Trump is communicating that he doesn't know how to go up against Bernie Sanders. He's afraid it's going to be much tougher. He probably thinks that he can win, but he's admitting here it's going to be a lot more tougher. Now, there have been reports that Donald Trump doesn't necessarily want to go up against socialism because he doesn't know how to counter that appeal, canceling student debt right? Uh, free college. These are things that are difficult to run against. So here's the thing. This isn't just about Donald Trump and, you know, us being able, members of the Brotherhood of the Bernard, being able to boast and say, I told you so. This is a really strong message to Democrats who claim to want to defeat Donald Trump, and that's their number one priority. Here you have an incumbent president admitting on tape that he does not want to go up against someone primarily because he doesn't know how to argue against what Bernie Sanders is offering. Will Democrats unite behind the person who is strongest to take on Donald Trump, who even Donald Trump is afraid of? Or will they continue to push more moderates like Joe Biden, who is clearly unhinged, who doesn't have a good argument that appeals to the working class, or someone like Amy Klobuchar or Pete Buttigieg, who can't actually turn out disaffected non-voters? No, the answer is, it's Bernie Sanders. He is the strongest person to take on Donald Trump. Now, as Bernie Sanders surges, the establishment is going to inadvertently reveal their cards because if they don't unite behind Bernie Sanders willingly, then everything that they told us about us needing to unite behind the eventual frontrunner and all of this talk of unity was bogus. So they are going to delegitimize themselves if they do not back Bernie Sanders because now we have straight from the horse's mouth, Donald Trump is saying, I don't want to run against Bernie Sanders because it's going to be tougher. Primarily because Donald Trump, who will be making the case against the Democratic Party nominee, doesn't know how to argue against Bernie Sanders. Will Democrats actually take up this unique opportunity to win back the White House? Or will they choose to try to fight Bernie Sanders? I think we all know the answer. So this isn't really revealing about Donald Trump. Because we already knew that Donald Trump didn't want to run against Bernie Sanders. That's why he, oftentimes he bites his tongue and doesn't attack Bernie Sanders. But this tells us more about the establishment than anything. Because when we know definitively that Donald Trump does not want to go up 
against Bernie Sanders and the people who have been screaming the loudest that we need to unite so we can take on Donald Trump and we need the strongest Democrat to go on, go up against Donald Trump, aren't uniting behind Bernie. I mean, it, it tells you everything you need to know about them. This talk of unity was a scam. The Democratic establishment, they are frauds. And if they were truly committed to wanting to defeat Donald Trump, they would be trying to not tip the scales in favor of someone like Joe Biden, who would be incredibly weak against Donald Trump. We all know it. I can't argue against the polling currently, but I think that people realize that this individual is unhinged and increasingly as time goes on, he's showing why he's not the strongest person to take on Donald Trump. It's obvious that it's Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders is the antithesis of Donald Trump, as T.I. put it. Any appeal that Donald Trump has Bernie undercuts that appeal. So for all of this rationalizations as to why it shouldn't be Bernie Sanders, now we have evidence that it is Bernie. We were correct. It's Bernie. He's the one who Democrats want to take on Donald Trump if they truly want to win. But the fact that they're not uniting behind Bernie Sanders tells you everything that we need to know. They're frauds. They don't really care about defeating Donald Trump. This is about protecting the uh, gravy train. So by now, this is old news, and I think a lot of people have moved on from the Joe Rogan, Bernie Sanders story, but I wanted to weigh in, and I wanted to take a couple of days to really, like, mull this situation over and reflect on it, um, because it's not necessary for me to respond to every single thing that happens as it happens. Sometimes I just want to take some time to think things through. So for those of you who don't know, if you've been living under a rock, uh, Joe Rogan kind of tacitly... Um, kind of endorsed Bernie Sanders and said in a recent interview uh, or podcast with Barry Weiss that he'd probably vote for Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders then tweeted out Joe Rogan complimenting him for being consistent throughout the years. And um, that was that, right? Well, no, the establishment uh, decided to attack Bernie Sanders because he elevated someone who has made problematic comments in the past. Now, what's interesting to me, first and foremost, is that the people who are uh, speaking out are supporters of Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, Joe Biden, all tried to get on Joe Rogan's podcast themselves and would have likely done the same thing to elevate this endorsement. Um, but on top of that, it just it really shows to you that the Democratic Party establishment and their loyalists, they don't really give a shit about these issues, these woke issues, for lack of a better word, that affect our lives, right? I had a really long talk with Kyle Kalinske of Secular Talk on Progressive Voices channel. I'll link to that down below where we talked about this issue. I talked about the issues that I had with Joe Rogan platforming right-wingers and the misinformation that they spread about trans people and Joe Rogan's attacks on trans people. So I'm not going to defend Joe Rogan's comments that he made, but I will say this, as someone who is you know, a representative of the political center in America, Joe Rogan is someone who I think is rational and smart enough to genuinely be convinced. Like, I'm a member of the LGBTQ community, and the comments that Joe Rogan makes about trans people, they really, really bother me. They genuinely do. But a lot of people are making these same arguments. And what I say to that is, let's convince them. Let's change their minds. Because the people who are making really ignorant comments about gay rights saying you know things like oh well every sin is equal so don't judge trying to be an ally but calling you know gay people sinners i mean we had to correct them and i think that we've won them over and i think that people like joe Biden or joe rogan who are in that political center they can be won over they just have to talk with people and engage with people in the trans community so like i don't think he's too far gone 
But here's what really what really affected me the most in this story was the hypocrisy. It was trying to capitalize on the trans issue and trans rights that really bugged me um, because it felt so vapid. It felt so disingenuous and hollow. So, for example, Joe Biden, who tried to get on Joe Rogan's podcast himself, or at least his team did, tweeted out support for trans people. Now, look, I'll take it. I want you to tweet support for trans people. But here's the thing. I don't want you to just like comment trans rights. Like, I want you to genuinely believe in trans rights from your gut. Like, I want you to believe it in your heart of hearts. But I think that the establishment just showed that they don't give a fuck about trans rights or the LGBTQ community. And I say that because lately I've been speaking out about Hillary Clinton's comments. She is basically a turf. She made comments where she essentially said that cis women are threatened by trans women, something like that. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, right? Now, here's my thing. I take issue with Joe Rogan and what he said about trans people and Hillary Clinton. Both, I think, can be convinced on this issue. Both, I think, are gettable. But what irritates me is that the people who are berating Joe Rogan here embrace Hillary Clinton with open arms, said nothing about Hillary Clinton's brazenly transphobic comments. Now, again, Joe Rogan and Hillary Clinton have said things about trans people that I do not like. With that being said, why is there selective outrage? I'll tell you why. It's because this is an effort to get Bernie Sanders to disavow Joe Rogan's endorsement because they know that this can help Bernie Sanders. Like, Joe Rogan has a massive audience, the largest podcast in America. So if Bernie Sanders says, you know what, I don't want your endorsement, that's going to turn off all of Joe Rogan's uh, viewers who may be inclined to support Bernie Sanders, who Bernie may have convinced after he went on Joe Rogan's podcast. So this is politically calculated, and that's why I feel so hurt by this. The establishment who I kind of suspected didn't really care about LGBTQ issues and these woke issues, they're revealing that they're only using trans people and LGBTQ people as a political tool. They're using us. They're using us to basically defeat Bernie Sanders, who has the strongest record on trans rights and has the best platform on trans issues. Now, Bernie's not perfect, but Medicare for All which would make healthcare free at the point of service for trans people, would be a game changer for trans people. Now, he has work to do. All of the candidates have work to do. Um, I think that Bernie needs to commit to decriminalizing sex work because that is an issue that affects LGBTQ people, namely trans people, namely trans women of color. So he's got to do better, but by far and away, Bernie's policies would have the most profound effect on trans people. But... They don't care about that. They won't acknowledge that. They just want to defeat Bernie Sanders. So that's why it feels so like hurtful because I'm getting flashbacks to the days like in 2010 when I just came out and I was really relying on the Democratic Party to be LGBTQ allies. And I was hurt by the fact that Obama was elected and didn't support gay marriage until he was running for re-election. And it irritated me that nobody would respond to that. Nobody seemed to care that we have a president who's supposedly progressive, who thinks we should be second-class citizens. And then when we wanted Democrats to repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell, I remember watching the TYT segment where they talked about how Democrats were possibly buckling, and it just felt, man, their support for us is hollow. It doesn't feel like they genuinely give a shit about us. They put up gay flags just to get us to vote for them, and then when push comes to shove, they abandon us when it's politically expedient. Now, that's not to say that, you know, they... Uh, 
have always failed us, right? They ended up voting to repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell, for example. But I'm getting that feeling again where it feels like their support for us is asymmetric, where, you know, we're expected to support Democrats and they're not really going to be there for us. And I say us because even though I'm not trans, I feel like as part of the community, we all have to like stick up for each other. And just to see this hollow support, it's not that surprising, but it really is like to get explicit examples of them trying to use the trans issue just to beat Bernie. Oh, it just, you know, it kind of clicks. They don't actually give a fuck about us, the LGBTQ community and trans people. They're just using it to try to beat Bernie. Okay. I mean, Joe Biden, who just touted, you know, his support for segregationist senators, who voted for DOMA, all of a sudden gets more woke points than Bernie Sanders because at the right time, at this convenient time politically, he said something positive about trans rights. It just all feels so fake. And the Democratic establishment, like, it's a house of cards that is collapsing before our very eyes because this is exposing people. They're kind of self-exposing as the frauds that they are. They're simply using these issues because Bernie is to the left of them. And in a primary, you know, being to the left of other candidates benefits you, right? So they have nothing economically. They're not leftists. So they try to run on social issues and that's all that they've got. But when push comes to shove, they sh they've shown that they're cowards, they're only willing to speak out on gay and trans issues and whatnot when it's convenient for them. And that really is hurtful. Like, I, I saw comments from trans people who are saying, don't, like, be outraged for me. Like, listen to me, right? I saw trans people say, I support Bernie. I don't like Joe Rogan, but at the same time, we need to win this election. And he has a huge audience. We'd be idiots to have Bernie disavow this endorsement. So, I mean, this is just me kind of, like giving you my personal take, which probably won't be helpful, but I think that it's important that, you know, as a member of the LGBTQ community, I speak out and share my perspective because, you know, the establishment likes to pretend like Bernie's base is just full of, you know, white bros, but no, this is a really diverse coalition of people, including many LGBTQ people. And uh, one poll that was taken shows that Bernie has the second highest rate of supporters in the LGBTQ community. Elizabeth Warren was at number one, but Bernie Sanders was at number two. And if the establishment didn't try to pretend like he was bad on these issues, on social issues, then Bernie would probably be in number one. But it just, like, overall, what this tells me is that the establishment's support for gay issues and trans issues is little more than lip service. So I recently gave MSNBC's Chris Matthews credit for giving us an honest assessment of Bernie's chances in Iowa. Look, I know that it pains pundits in mainstream media to admit that Bernie Sanders has a chance. Um, so I, I feel the need to give them credit when they actually are honest and don't just lie about his chances and tell us that he has no chance of winning. Um, however, I'm going to have to take that credit back, albeit temporarily, because uh, he decided to attack Bernie Sanders using an, an analogy, and it was just, it was embarrassingly pathetic. I can't describe it as anything but embarrassingly pathetic, but stick around because the story does have a happy ending, thankfully. Um, but here's what Chris Matthews said, and if you're going to use any analogy to argue against Bernie Sanders, this is the worst possible one you can come up with. Why are you 
latest question is this one. It's sort of like the question pollsters ask. Um, who cares about people like you? And my question is a little more direct than that. Suppose you're lying on a road hurt. Which of the candidates would stop their car and get out and help you? I think Biden wins that one pretty easily. I think Elizabeth maybe. I don't think Bernie wins it. Do you? Honestly? They are the question you got to ask about. Will this person help me when I need him? Because the rest yeah. is beer. So I love how Mika and Joe laughed at him. Um, but this analogy, first and foremost, it's it's not helpful because it doesn't tell you anything about the candidate, right? I mean, I would just assume that the person who would be the most likely to stop and help someone would be the one with the most compassionate platform, which is Bernie Sanders. But in actuality, I mean, you're just inserting what you think a candidate would do when there's no evidence that that would be the case, especially when it comes to Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren. I don't know what they would do. I don't know if Joe Biden or Elizabeth Warren would stop and help someone. Who knows? That doesn't say anything about, you know, uh, we can't we can't assume what they would do based on their current policies or political status. I don't know. But what I do know is that out of all the candidates, Bernie Sanders most likely would be the one, if anyone's going to stop and help someone, to help people. Why? Because we have evidence of him stopping to help people. So, for example, at a rally, somebody fainted and he dropped everything to make sure that that person was okay. I will tell you is there is one issue out there. Oh, God. I think she's, she walked away. I think she's okay. And that wasn't a one-off. This happened again, and he had the same human reaction. Some of you know they were in, in some... Oh, my God. Now, in both of those clips, he did not resume talking again. He was giving a speech, didn't say a word until he was able to see firsthand that those people were okay and they got up and walked away. This is someone who is genuinely compassionate. He cares about other human beings, hence why his platform really reflects that Medicare for all student loan debt cancellation he doesn't just want to make sure that we're able to get by he wants human beings to thrive and if we have or needed any definitive proof that bernie sanders would be the candidate to stop and help someone over on the side of the road well he literally did save someone's life who was going to be hit by a car quote bernie sanders i kid you not stopped me from getting hit by a car on my way to my guitar lesson so we took a selfie together Yes, this is a true story. It happened, and the local news in that area picked up the story. Wednesday evening, Amy ventured onto Massachusetts Avenue, heading to a music lesson on Capitol Hill. Went straight past under Sanders. She turned around to find Sanders very worried. Before I could even say anything, he was just like, ma'am, ma'am, you got to get off the street. Um, there's incoming traffic. And the only thing that could come out of my mouth was, oh my goodness, are you Senator Sanders? And he was just like, yes, but you have to get off the street. Amy quickly made it back to Sanders. She's not sure what would have happened if Sanders hadn't been there. She's just glad he was. So, I mean, look, I don't know if Joe Biden or Pete Buttigieg or Amy Klobuchar or Elizabeth Warren would stop and help someone if they were lying on the side of the road. I would assume no, but that's probably because of my own political biases. I don't necessarily know what they're like 
as a person, as a human being. So for Chris Matthews to uh, use this analogy to attack Bernie Sanders, I mean, there are numerous instances where Bernie Sanders shows that he is the most humane and compassionate candidate. So this came off as tone deaf. It came off as, you know, pathetic him reaching to attack Bernie Sanders. And I think he realized that, and credit where it's due, he actually apologized. I, I want to talk about this poll question about Bernie because I looked at the polls for 2016 against Hillary. Now, Hillary won on experience. She won on electability. She lost on two dramatically to Bernie. Does, uh, is he honest? He killed her on honesty. Killed her on honesty and authenticity. Does, does this guy or this person care about people like me? Killed her. So empathy. Now, this morning I was trying to fashion that into a tougher question, a good Samaritan question. If you're in trouble on the side of the road, you're lying down somewhere and you're in trouble, who's gonna stop the car and see if you're okay? Now, I speculated Biden, a lot of people agree with that, but I unfortunately speculate the guy who'd be least likely to do it would be Bernie. <laughs> That's totally unfair of me, absolutely unfair. I don't know, I only have done a quick poll with three or four people and they all said Bernie. So, uh, but it's not fair, we need a I always say to people, ask around, but it's not fair for me to make a judge because Bernie does have, a lot of empathy on healthcare and things like that. And I have no reason to believe he wouldn't stop that car and jam on the brakes. Your thoughts, who would be the most likely to stop? Did I want to put you all in trouble. Guy in the movies, <laughs> no, no, I'm fixing it. I'm dealing with were, my conscience here. praising your Irish background earlier and all of a sudden this apology comes out. So I'll say this, apology accepted. Because I am 100% willing to forgive someone if they make an error and they admit that they're wrong. There's no reason to, you know, um, shit on him relentlessly because he made this mistake. I think he realizes that it was petty and unfair for him to try to use this analogy to attack Bernie Sanders, and I think he probably realized that this isn't a good look for him. Like, this helps nobody determine who's the best candidate. This doesn't necessarily say anything about the candidates. It just shows that Chris Matthews himself has an anti-Bernie bias, so I, I give him credit for acknowledging that he was wrong, but let's just try to be objective. Like, if you're in the mainstream media... Just maybe try a little bit harder to be objective so you don't have to apologize for doing these types of uh, segments where you attack Bernie Sanders for literally nothing. I mean, if anyone is going to, you know, stop and help me if I'm on the side of the road, out of all the candidates, I'd choose Bernie Sanders because he has a history of wanting to help people and he's a compassionate human being. That's why people trust him. That's why people love him. So um, don't do this. Not a good look. Nonetheless, Thank you for apologizing, Chris. As Bernie Sanders continues to rise in the polls, his primary opponents are trying desperately to scramble to find some way to stay relevant, and they're trying to throw Bernie Sanders under a bus in order to boost themselves, and they're using electability as their primary case against Bernie Sanders. Now, Joe Biden has been making an electability argument since he entered the race. I think that with time, that argument is losing steam. But now, two individuals who really don't have a leg to stand on when it comes to electability are trying to make the case for themselves and say that Bernie Sanders isn't as electable as they'd be ironically giving their standing in the polls. But for more on this, we go to Dan Merica and Jeff Zeleny of CNN, who write, private concern among moderate Democrats has steadily escalated into public alarm about whether Sanders becoming the party's standard bearer would make it easier for President Donald Trump to be reelected and complicate the party's chances of winning control of the Senate and holding its majority in the House. The heart of those concerns stem from Sanders' proud embrace of being a democratic socialist, a moniker that many worry would 
would be a godsend for Trump and particularly hurt Democrats in swing districts the party won back in 2018. Bernie is surging and we're running out of time before the Iowa caucuses. Pete Buttigieg, the former mayor of South Bend, Indiana, wrote Sunday in a fundraising appeal to supporters, bluntly suggesting Sanders would be a risk as the party's nominee. Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar told reporters on Sunday that she believes Sanders would be bad for down-ballot races in 2020 if he is the nominee. Quote, that's my argument. My argument is that I will make our tent bigger, our coalition wider, and my coattails are longer. I actually have receipts, she said. I don't come from a state as blue as Vermont. Now, what's interesting to me is that Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar, as they try to make the case for their electability, they don't have a leg to stand on. Joe Biden has been trying to make this case. Now, I argue substantively against his chances, but he at least has polls to point to. Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg have nothing. I mean, Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg are running ideologically the same campaign as Hillary Clinton. And she lost. Down-ballot races were hurt by Hillary Clinton. But yet they're saying someone who clearly excites younger voters is going to be bad for the party. And they're saying, you know what? I'm the one who is best positioned to not only excite the base and help down-ticket races, but beat Donald Trump when that's nonsense. Let's look at the polls and see what they say. According to a recent Survey USA poll, Bernie Sanders is the one who beats Trump by the widest margin, bigger than any 2020 Democrat with a nine-point advantage, and in the same poll, Amy Klobuchar actually loses to Donald Trump by two points, and Pete Buttigieg, even though he does beat Trump in this poll, he beats him by three points, which is six points behind Bernie, and let me remind you, we need the largest cushion possible, assuming Donald Trump will be successful at driving down support for the eventual Democratic Party nominee. So, uh, basing it off of polls, you don't want to go with Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar, you want to go with Bernie Sanders. Now, that's just one poll. Let's look at aggregate polling data and see what it says. So, currently, overall, Joe Biden does beat Donald Trump by the largest margin, with 4.3 points overall, although I've told you why I think that is a really um, soft lead that he has. But also, Bernie Sanders does beat Trump by three points. I think that would increase in a general election. And Elizabeth Warren does beat Donald Trump, albeit by a small margin, 1.2 points, but she does beat him nonetheless. Now, Pete Buttigieg overall loses to Donald Trump. I repeat, he loses to Donald Trump by 0.2 points. And this has been a consistent finding in the polls. Sometimes aggregate polling data shows that Pete Buttigieg does beat Donald Trump. However, after I've been following this for months, consistently it shows that he's the weakest against Donald Trump. So the question is, what is Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar basing this off of? Like, why are you saying that you're the most electable when that's demonstrably false? He's going to make the case for himself and respond to this attack that he lobbed against Bernie Sanders after everyone was screaming unity. And um, he's basically going to explain that he's the most electable by lying about polling data. Mayor Pete, I'm wondering, I'm going to start out with a question about this fundraising email that I'm looking at right now that came from your campaign. It's actually from your deputy campaign manager. Um which says a lot of things, but also this. Bernie Sanders performs the worst against President Trump compared to all major candidates. So I guess my question to you is how so? Well, uh, we've seen uh, polling data come back uh, showing that uh, I would be the best candidate to take on Donald Trump. And I think uh, one of the things that many voters I have uh, encountered on the trail have in common, by the way, not just 
true blue Democrats, but independents and a lot of Republicans who are sick of this president. The uh, big thing that so many folks have in common is the importance of defeating this president. Now, that's not just about ideology. It's about a lot of things. What we know for sure is we're not going to be able to beat Donald Trump by recycling the same political mindset that brought us to this point. What I'm offering is something completely different, and I'm insisting that what it takes to govern is also what it's going to take to win. I'm the best candidate to do that, to turn the page, to move us into a different future. And that's uh, uh, such a priority right now, knowing that this is our one shot, our only shot to defeat this president. Shameless. He is absolutely shameless. Quote, we have polling data coming back showing that I would be the best candidate to take on Donald Trump. In what universe? In what universe? You are the weakest candidate to take on Donald Trump, the weakest. Elizabeth Warren is more electable than you against Donald Trump. So I don't know what he's talking about. And again, ideologically speaking, we just tried running a moderate and that failed spectacularly. So you don't even make a substantive case that's very compelling. But I mean, for you to just outright lie and say that the polls show that you're better, I mean, it just shows how shameless and desperate Pete Buttigieg is. No, you're not the strongest to take on Donald Trump. You get your ass beat by Donald Trump. You would not beat Donald Trump because this thumb-pointing, rehearsed politician will be demolished by someone who has absolutely no filter, who shoots from the hip, who isn't afraid to, you know, hit below the belt. Donald Trump doesn't care about respectability politics. He's not going to play by the rules set out by the establishment. So we need someone with a large cushion who can take on Donald Trump and, you know, withstand a couple of blows and ultimately beat him. And the key to beating Donald Trump, as was demonstrated with Obama's victory, is turning out disaffected, namely young voters. Pete Buttigieg absolutely has no case to be made when it comes to that. Young voters do not like him. In fact, he's doing almost as bad with young voters as he is with black voters. So if anyone is going to make the case for electability, Pete Buttigieg is the one with the least amount of credibility here. Amy Klobuchar also has zero credibility. She loses to Donald Trump in that uh, Survey USA poll. These people are clowns, but understand, they know that they don't have anything left. Their one appeal to Democratic Party primary voters to vote for them as, you know, unappealing and uninspiring as they are is to fear monger and concern troll about Bernie's electability. But guess what? Donald Trump will be difficult to defeat. That's true. But if anyone is going to beat him, it's going to be Bernie Sanders because nobody else has the uh, huge grassroots movement that Bernie Sanders has built and nobody else even comes close when it comes to younger voters. So step aside and unite behind the eventual nominee because all of these attacks on Bernie only weaken him if he is the eventual frontrunner. Now, do I personally believe that? No, but I'm kind of giving them a little bit of a taste of their own medicine because whenever somebody else was ahead in the polls and we criticized them based on policy, we were told to shut up because that's going to weaken the eventual nominee and we need to unite behind them so we can beat Donald Trump. So I'm just turning that argument back on you. If you truly care about beating Donald Trump, then stop attacking Bernie Sanders because this is going to hurt him and we all need to unite and vote blue for Bernie Sanders specifically because look, if you want to beat Trump, I've said it time and again, it is Bernie Sanders. Don't roll the dice with the centrist again. Vote for Bernie Sanders, beat Donald Trump. We have another instance where somebody attended a Joe Biden rally and decided to 
politely challenge him on a particular aspect of his campaign and predictably he melted down and once again told that voter to support someone else not to vote for him and this really goes to show you that joe biden doesn't have the temperament to take on Donald Trump or become the president. And it also shows you that he melts down under the most minimal amount of scrutiny that in the general against Donald Trump, he would unquestionably not be able to hold his own. Take a look. We're gonna support you if you win the nominations. We gotta get rid Remy? of Trump. But what are we gonna do about climate change? Now, you say you're say you against pipelines, but then you wanna replace these gas lines. That's not gonna work. We, can't, we, we gotta stop building and replacing pipelines. We gotta go vote for somebody else. All right, thanks so much, sir. We're gonna have you here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'm gonna vote you in the general if you treat me. Yeah, I know. Well, I'm not. Well, can I have a picture? Thank you, thank you. You're asking a picture of me, coming up and telling me you don't support me. No, no, no. My plan, yeah, you did. You said you I said I will support you in the general. In the general. I'm looking for a primary. We're happy to get a number. So my favorite part was at the end when um that guy asked if he can get a picture. <laughs> I mean how awkward. Um, and Joe Biden just, he decided to blame Bernie Sanders. Oh, well, you're supporting Bernie Sanders. He just assumed that that guy was a Bernie Sanders supporter, which kind of goes to show you that uh, Bernie is getting under Joe Biden's skin because as time goes on, these criticisms of Joe Biden's record when it comes to Social Security are starting to hurt him because as this article from The Intercept points out, older voters are fleeing from Biden to Bernie Sanders, and it's because his record on Social Security is unreliable now getting to the substance here like this guy was asking him for a very basic policy concession because joe biden claims that he wants to do something about climate change however he is supporting fracking right he doesn't want to end fracking immediately he supports these types of pipelines at least tacitly and this guy is basically just asking him would you reconsider and joe biden won't even engage with him in good faith he just says well go vote for someone else or something like that i mean it's just unbelievable someone who he does not believe is going to vote for him he just disregards entirely but i mean if you want to be the president then ideally you want to represent even the people who don't vote for you right that's what a candidate who is running to fix the country would say but joe biden i mean this is all about him right he doesn't care about anyone unless they're helping him get to the white house he thinks that he should just be anointed the presidency because he was the vice president um no it's not going to work that way it's not going to work that way and if you actually want to win this primary, you have to prove to us that you're capable of speaking to the issues that affect us and also that you can take on Donald Trump. But imagine, I mean, Joe Biden melted down when somebody at one of his town halls asked him about Hunter Biden. Trump will beat him over the head with this. And we're already seeing that he can't stand up to even the slightest, most polite amount of criticism. So in the event Donald Trump actually brings up Hunter Biden or criticizes him. How is Joe Biden going to respond? He's going to melt down and lose it. So all of this talk of electability and him making this electability argument, I mean, he's undercutting it. He doesn't realize what he's doing because he's communicating to voters that he's not the right person to take on Donald Trump. Somebody who's going to go up against Donald Trump has got to demonstrate that they have thick skin, right? They've got to demonstrate that they don't care about these attacks. They're just going to let them roll off of their shoulders. But Joe Biden can't handle it, even from people who are political allies, technically. That guy's voting for Tom Steyer, which he should vote for Bernie if he truly cares about climate change. But nonetheless, 
I mean, Joe Biden should see a Democratic Party primary voter as an ally, but he doesn't. He melts down. Go vote for somebody else. He told an immigration activist, go vote for Donald Trump. It doesn't say much for his electability argument because Hillary Clinton, one thing about her, even though she had a lot of issues, she did allow attacks to basically just roll off of her shoulders. And Joe Biden is incapable of doing that because like Donald Trump, he is a man child. So it's just embarrassing this and the fact that he's dodging questions from reporters. Now he hasn't taken their questions in a while. Um, the fact that a CBS reporter um, was ambushed by him with his, wah, 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 with, I mean, it's just, this is weird. He's genuinely unhinged and he is communicating to all of us that he doesn't have the temperament needed to become president and take on Donald Trump. So I hope that voters are watching and I hope that Biden supporters acknowledge that if they truly are committed to choosing someone who can defeat Donald Trump, Joe Biden isn't that person. It's Bernie Sanders. Because how many times have you seen Bernie Sanders lose it on a reporter? Zero times. It's because Bernie Sanders acts like an adult and he can take criticism. He's been taking criticism all throughout these years. So Joe Biden, once again, proving why he should not be the Democratic Party nominee, because he is a huge liability going up against Donald Trump in a general. So I don't really think that this is a surprise to anyone. We all knew that this was coming, but now it's official. A super PAC, a dark money group, we don't know where this funding is coming from, is now spending on ads in Iowa to take down Bernie Sanders. Now, look, it became very clear to me that once poll after poll showed that he is the favorite in Iowa and also New Hampshire, there would be some type of coordinated effort to defeat Bernie Sanders. This is what, you know, a Democratic Party mega donor, Steve Ratner, said openly on MSNBC. This is what Democratic operatives are anonymously telling outlets like uh, the Washington Post and the Daily Beast. But now it's official. They are trying to take down Bernie Sanders, acknowledge that no other candidate has to deal with this. Bernie Sanders is at a unique disadvantage in the sense that no other Democrat is facing an internal attack from a Democratic-affiliated dark money group, right? Bernie Sanders is alone here, but he is uniquely advantaged in that he has a movement that no other candidate has. So they spent on this ad to take down Bernie Sanders, but I'm going to tell you the result afterwards. It didn't play how they hoped it would. The most important thing is we have to be Trump. We've seen the damage that Trump and the Republican Congress have done. I doubt if Bernie Sanders can beat Trump. I like Bernie. I think he has great ideas. But Michigan, Pennsylvania, Iowa, they're just not going to vote for a socialist. I do have some concerns about Bernie Sanders' health, considering the fact that he did have a heart attack. I think it's very important that the Democrats nominate somebody that can beat Trump. I don't feel as though Bernie Sanders would do well against Donald Trump. I just don't think Bernie can beat Trump. DMFI PAC is responsible for the content of this advertising. Yeah, so that was absolutely pathetic. And for those of you who feel inclined to seek out and dislike that video, uh, I already tried. Take it from me. And uh, predictably, they disabled comments and likes and dislikes, probably knowing that this ad wouldn't go over too well and that they'd probably get disliked into oblivion. But I mean, this ad shows how desperate they are. They don't even have a real argument against Bernie Sanders. They're trying to say that he's not as electable as other Democrats, we don't know necessarily who. Nonetheless, he's not electable, and they're trying to throw everything at the wall in order to see what sticks. He is a socialist. Uh, did you remember that he had a heart attack? And then we hear from Karen, who just doesn't feel 
like Bernie Sanders can win. Um, except, fuck your feelings, we have numbers on our side. In fact, a new poll just came out showing Bernie Sanders is competitive in Texas. Of all states, he has the best shot at turning Texas blue. And on top of that, he polls consistently well in the Rust Belt states where Hillary Clinton lost. So they can't possibly cite a single statistic because they have nothing. If they actually argued in good faith based on data, well, it shows that Bernie Sanders is in a very good position to defeat Donald Trump. So they have to lie and come up with this type of feelings-based argument where paid actors and actresses say, uh, you know, it just it just doesn't seem like Bernie Sanders can win. Oh, okay. Well, uh, thanks for that. Uh, we're going to go ahead and not go with the advice of the people who were likely pushing for Hillary Clinton, who ultimately lost to Donald Trump. Now, if you're wondering how this played out for this dark money group, uh, the answer is not too well, because this backfired in a monumental way that even surprised me. And this article from the New York Times explains it really well. Super PAC attacks Sanders in an ad. Sanders raises $1.3 million in a day. As Bernie Sanders shows strength in the early voting states, his opponents face a challenge. Attacking him can help fuel his campaign. So, to really explain, Bernie Sanders was aware of the fact that this ad was going to be ran. He put out a fundraising email and 70,000 donations came in within a day, one day. So if this group was trying to hurt Bernie Sanders, what they just did was further galvanize his support base. They made him more powerful. So to say that this backfired would be an understatement. But for more details on this, we go to Sydney Ember, and she explains this in a bit more detail in this article. She's usually biased against Bernie Sanders, but I do think that she does a fairly good job at explaining the situation objectively. Quote, a Democratic super PAC wanted to undermine Senator Bernie Sanders' presidential candidacy just days before the Iowa caucuses. It may have handed him a gift instead. Mr. Sanders' campaign said on Wednesday that it had raised more than 1.3 million since it began fundraising the day before off a negative ad produced by the super PAC that targets Mr. Sanders by name. The ad, backed by the political action arm of the group Democratic Majority for Israel, argues that Mr. Sanders of Vermont would be unable to beat President Trump in the November general election, citing his heart attack nearly five months ago and his left-wing ideology as evidence that he would be too risky a choice for Iowa caucus-goers focused on winning back the White House. The ad was scheduled to begin airing in Iowa on Wednesday, but the Sanders campaign sent an email to supporters on Tuesday warning that Mr. Sanders was being targeted by negative ads and alluding to an outside spending group without citing Democratic majority for Israel. The Sanders campaign, like many of its rivals, often points to signs of adversity to juice donations, and Mr. Sanders supporters responded on Tuesday with a flood of contributions. The financial windfall underscored a central challenge facing his opponents. Attacking him can help fuel his campaign. Democratic Majority for Israel is focused on raising support for Israel within the party, and the group and its allies worry that Mr. Sanders' questioning of the Democratic Party's long-standing support for Israel could damage the United States' historically strong relationship with the country. But Mark Melman, the group's president, said it was equally worried about Mr. Sanders' chances against Mr. Trump if he were to become the nominee. Actually, let me try to decode for you what they're actually saying. They're not worried that Donald Trump will beat Bernie Sanders. They're worried that Bernie Sanders will beat Donald Trump. 
That's what they're worried about. They know he is a threat. They know he can win. And they know that, you know, their days of secretly bankrolling campaigns with dark money, flooding elections, are going to be over if Bernie Sanders becomes the president of the United States. So they are doing everything in their power to gaslight, to lie, to smear Bernie Sanders. And guess what? As you do this, he's absorbing the blows and becoming more and more powerful. Because whenever I see a petty pundit attack Bernie Sanders, I donate five bucks to him. Whenever I see a smear piece about Bernie bros, we make more calls for Bernie Sanders. Whenever we see the Democratic Party establishment speak out and try to stop him at the behest of their donors, more volunteers knock on doors for him. We get that much more energized because guess what? We know what we're up against. We knew that having someone like Bernie Sanders get in the White House would not be an easy task. In fact, this will be the hardest thing we ever accomplish if we're successful here. So it's not like this is anything new. We anticipated it and we expected it. In fact, the only surprise to us is that these types of ad buys didn't come sooner, but they waited because they knew that if they chose to really go negative against Bernie Sanders, that this would galvanize the base. So um, once they saw that he had a real chance, that's when they decided to try and risk it and predictably didn't work out too well for them. So um, my message to them is go ahead and keep it up because this is going to help Bernie Sanders and make him stronger because whenever you fight to defeat him, we fight harder to elect him. So um, we are absolutely not rattled by this, and we expect even more ads from this group as well as others, because we know that moneyed interests aren't just going to roll over and allow Bernie Sanders to march to the nomination easily. We know they're going to put up a fight, and we know that they're going to do everything in their power to cling on to the status quo. But guess what? We're fighting back. We are prying their fingers away from power. Because we don't have a choice. If we want to save the planet, if we want to save the country, save democracy in America, literally, we don't have a choice. We have to fight even harder. And whenever they try to uh, punch us, we're going to counterpunch. And I guarantee you that we're going to land those blows against them. So I will leave you with a message from Bernie Sanders, who basically tells all of these moneyed groups that, you know, if they're nervous... They should be nervous because we're coming for them. It is no secret that our campaign is taking on the political establishment and the big money interests who are now running negative ads against us in Iowa. The billionaire class is getting nervous, and they should. Under our administration, there will be real campaign finance reform so that billionaires will not be able to buy elections as they're trying to do right now. Under our administration, the wealthy and the powerful will begin paying their fair share of taxes. The drug companies will no longer rip off the American people. The fossil fuel industry will not continue destroying our planet. And healthcare will become a human right, not a means for insurance companies to make billions. The big money interests can run all the negative ads they want, but it's not going to work. The people in Iowa and across America are sick and tired of status quo politics, and they want a government that will work for all of us, not just wealthy campaign contributors. Our opponents may have endless amounts of money, but we have the people, and our grassroots movement will prevail.
So to nobody's surprise, the DNC once again is back up to their old tricks. And I mean, after all the blowback that they received in 2016, when it was proven by Donald Brazil and WikiLeaks that they rigged the primary against Bernie Sanders, you'd at least expect them to be a little bit less conspicuous. And how they're trying to stack the deck against Bernie Sanders this time comes in the form of appointments from Tom Perez to the Democratic National Convention, filling it with individuals who either endorsed someone other than Bernie, worked for Hillary Clinton or Obama, or are outright haters of Bernie Sanders. Take a look at this list. Now, a couple of names that stand out are Barney Frank. He is appointed as one of the co-chairs to the Rural Committee, and he was a surrogate for Hillary Clinton and was relentless in his attacks against Bernie Sanders, attacked him for being a socialist, attacked him over and over again. And to have him as a co-chair of the Rules Committee completely unacceptable. You also have John Podesta, who it was revealed by WikiLeaks that he questioned in an email how he can, you know, uh, shiv Bernie Sanders or stick a knife in Bernie Sanders, I'm paraphrasing. And really the only person who is explicitly aligned with Bernie Sanders here on this list is Larry Cohen. So, I mean, this is totally unacceptable. And if the DNC thinks that we're going to sit idly by and allow them to stack the deck against us when our movement is bigger than it was before when we're that much more desperate to beat Donald Trump? No. I mean, if they're not willing to live up to the uh, standards of unity that they set out, we're going to call them out. So for more on this, we go to Jonathan Easley of The Hill, who reports some Democratic National Committee members and supporters of Senator Bernie Sanders are venting frustration at DNC Chairman Tom Perez over his initial appointments to the committee that will oversee the rules and party platform at the nominating convention in Milwaukee later this year. Sanders' allies are incensed by two names in particular, former Representative Barney Frank, who will co-chair the Rules Committee, and Hillary Clinton's former campaign chair. Chairman John Podesta, who will have a seat on that committee. The Sanders campaign unsuccessfully sought to have Frank removed from the Rules Committee in 2016, describing him as an aggressive attack surrogate for the Clinton campaign. And Podesta, a longtime Washington political consultant and Clinton confidant, is viewed with contempt by some on the left. One of Podesta's hacked emails from 2016 showed him asking a Democratic strategist where to stick the knife in Sanders, who lost the nomination to Clinton. That year after a divisive primary contest. There's a very small number of appointments of allies to Senator Sanders, said Yasmin Taib, a DNC member from Virginia who has not endorsed a candidate in 2020, but attended the 2016 convention as a delegate for Sanders. The appointments also include individuals that are outright hostile to Bernie Sanders and his supporters, she added. It's not the message the DNC should be sending to the grassroots right now when we're all working aggressively to defeat the racist in the White House. But here we are, which tells you that the DNC is not serious about beating Donald Trump. They cry and cry about unity, but where's the unity now? You put one individual who's an ally to Bernie Sanders out of all of these names, what, more than 100 people? And you stack it with consultants, lobbyists, former Hillary Clinton campaign officials and surrogates, haters of Bernie Sanders, and you just expect this to go over well with us? You know that this is not going to go over well. You know we're going to push back, but when we push back, what are they going to do? They're going to point to this pushback as an example of, oh, look at the Bernie bros. Look at how divisive they are. They're so transparent. They don't think that we 
can see through them, but we know exactly what they're doing, and Tom Perez is a weasel, and he can, you know, talk about hope, he can uh, point his thumb and call Donald Trump a stooge of Vladimir Putin all he wants, but we all know he's a fraud and he should have resigned prior to the Democratic Party primary because as DNC chair, you're supposed to be impartial. But we can't believe that you're impartial if you're appointing a bunch of people who fucking hate one of the candidates. We can't believe that you will be impartial if you are making endorsements as DNC chair in particular Democratic primary uh, races. For example, in New York, he endorsed Andrew Cuomo over Cynthia Nixon. The grassroots wanted Cynthia Nixon. He endorsed Andrew Cuomo. What happened to impartiality? This is in the DNC's own charter, but yet you can't even live up to the standards that your own organization set out, Tom? I mean, what gives? I'll tell you what gives. They are frauds, and the only way that we can actually stop the DNC from being so corrupt, so rotten to the core, is if Bernie Sanders overcomes all of this and becomes the Democratic Party nominee, and he just cleans house fires every single member of the DNC. Because guess what? If you win the Democratic Party's nomination, you get to take over the party. You become the new leader of the Democratic Party, right? This is what happened with Hillary Clinton. Um, she signed a joint fundraising agreement before she even actually captured the nomination. This is what Donna Brazile revealed. And she basically took over the DNC, the party. She was able to control their press releases. I believe that she uh, greenlit press releases. They kind of went through her. She controlled aspects of funding. So you do take over. So when we have Bernie Sanders surging in Iowa and New Hampshire, possibly winning this whole thing, is now the time when you really want to do this, Tom Perez? When Bernie Sanders can easily clean house Okay, so I mean, look, we know about Barney Frank, we know about John Podesta, but I want to go to a thread from um, Twitter user Kevin Gostola. He is a writer for Shadowproof, and he lays it all out. He kind of highlights why some of these names on this list, who may be less familiar to us, are incredibly problematic. For example, you have Danielle C. Gray, who is the chief legal officer for a private health insurance company, Blue Cross Blue Shield. I wonder if she supports Medicare for all. You have uh, Jake Sullivan, who worked for Hillary Clinton in 2016, and also Obama. wonder if he likes Bernie Sanders. You have CNN's Bakari Sellers, who is an infamous Bernie hater and member of APAC. You have Dan Shapiro, who agrees with Trump that the U.S. Embassy should be in Jerusalem. You have Craig Smith, who was White House political director for Bill Clinton, who went on to work for Hillary Clinton. I wonder how he feels about Bernie Sanders. You have Maria Cardona, who is a CNN contributor and corporate lobbyist, who has written op-eds where she has attacked Bernie Sanders for various reasons, namely because he is a socialist. You have Chris Liu from the Obama administration, who was a proponent of the TPP. You have Alexandra Gallardo-Rucker, who endorsed Clinton in 2016 and now works for Mike Bloomberg. You have Charles Baker, another lobbyist. You have Heidi Heitkamp, a loser, former Democratic senator from North Dakota, who now works in corporate media and is a board member of the McCain Institute. Shocker. You have Elaine Kamark, who works at the Brookings Institute and who is on tape advocating that the DNC chair, Tom Perez, should have the power to strip away the nomination unilaterally if he doesn't believe that that winner is loyal enough to the Democratic Party. So you have lobbyists, consultants, pro-corporate Democrats, individuals that work directly for the industry that we're fighting to beat. 
I mean, this is unbelievable. So I'll link you to that full thread by Kevin. It is long, it is comprehensive, and I can't possibly share everything that he said about these names, but just know that this list needs to be scrapped, completely scrapped. This is unacceptable. And the fact that Tom Perez thinks that he can get away with it, not going to happen. Not going to happen. We're going to call him out and he's going to say that we're being divisive, Bernie bros, but guess what? Too bad because we are tired of being fucked with. You rigged the primary in 2016 against us. So we're watching every single thing that you do. And maybe he thinks that he can get away with this. Maybe he could say, well, look, I put candidates for everyone on there. You know, uh, we have uh, candidates for Mike Bloomberg, surrogates for Kamala Harris, but also Larry Cohen, who supports Bernie. Not acceptable. Tom Perez from the beginning has been a snake, right? What did he do? He purged the DNC uh, with progressives. All the progressives on there that didn't really support him and supported Keith Ellison, they were fired. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And he did this under the guise of expanding diversity. Give me a break. He fired some of the most diverse people, right? Bab Cyperstein, who was a trans business owner, she was fired. The first trans member of the DNC, I believe, fired. You have individuals like James Zogby, fired. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just shocking how brazen they are. Like, they don't even care. But guess what? Um, we are going to fight. And we're going to win this time. We are going to defeat you. And when Bernie Sanders takes over the party, this is going to stop. And in the meanwhile, we're going to speak out and condemn this because this is totally unacceptable. And the list has got to be changed. Vice compiled a bunch of videos of Joe Biden where he was confronted by a voter or, you know, some random attendee and activist at one of his rallies. And he told them, quite frankly vote for someone else. He doesn't want their vote. And it's interesting because if you're running in a primary, that should not be your attitude. Your attitude should be, look, maybe I don't represent your interests, so I respect if you want to vote for someone else, but just know that as president, I'd represent you too. But no, this is incredibly hostile. It's dismissive. And look at his body language. Like, as I show you this, we're no body language experts, right? We we would be on uh, MSNBC if we were. But I mean, just look at the way that he interacts with them. He puts his hands on them. He tries to almost intimidate them. I mean, just this is so telling. Take a look. My name's Joe Biden. I'm running for, in this case, running for president of the United States. Look me over. If you like what you see, help out. If not, vote for the other person. Three million people that were deported and separated from their family. Yeah. We had this classification of families. And you should vote for Trump. Families you should vote for Trump. And be, no, no, I'm not. I'm not going to do that. What are we going to do about climate change? Now, you say you say you're against pipelines, but then you want to replace these gas lines. That's not going to work. We can't. We, we got to stop building and replacing pipelines. You have to go vote for somebody else. Well, I tell you what. If you look at my record and you still doubt about my commitment, then you should vote for somebody else. I'd love to make sure we don't can't use any oil or gas. Period. Now, now, is it possible? Yes. Well, you ought to vote for somebody else. Well, I knew you weren't, man. You think I thought you'd stand up and vote for me? You're too old to vote for me. I don't know about you, but it seems like Joe Biden is uh, trying to tell us something. Okay. If you don't want us to vote for you, you want us to vote for someone else, we'll take you up on that, Joe. And he needs to get the message that putting his hands on people is not acceptable. Like, I get that, you know, that's his way of communicating, but I've known people who talk really close, 
you know, they get close up in your face, not necessarily because they want to intimidate you or anything, but that's just their personality. And you have to tell them, respect my personal space, respect my bubble, right? Don't come within arm's length. Um, but nobody said that to Joe Biden, and it's incredibly creepy, it's off-putting, and if I confronted Joe Biden at a rally, and he, like, put his hand on me, I would be incredibly, incredibly offended. I mean, I'd tell him to fuck off, probably. What is he gonna do, punch me? You're running to be president. Get it together. I mean, it's just, it shows you how petulant he is, that he can't even withstand the most minimal amount of scrutiny from polite activists. I mean, for the record that he has, he should be confronted at every single event that he does. He should be protested everywhere he goes because he voted for an Iraq war that killed, what, hundreds of thousands of people at a minimum? So he should be lucky that he's not being pressed further on his record, but when somebody casually brings up, you know, something that is a liability, the Hunter Biden scandal, um, his record on climate change and whatnot, he melts down. He can't take it. He can't fathom anyone challenging him because he is owed the nomination in his mind. It's the same entitlement that we saw with Hillary Clinton that was so off-putting. Anyone who questions him is getting in his way. This is his turn, right? He was the vice president. He was a senator. Now it's his turn. So get out of the way. And if you're not helping him, then fuck off. That's basically this mentality. He is expected to just be anointed the Democratic Party nominee. And he doesn't like that Bernie Sanders is giving him a run for his money. And he's melting down in a way that is really unbecoming of someone who is trying to demonstrate to us that you know, he has the temperament to become the president. What if it's him versus Donald Trump? We're going to see two fucking petulant man babies go at it. I mean, you are going to be challenged if you are the nominee. There will be negative ads ran against you by the Republican Party. Donald Trump is going to be absolutely ruthless in challenging you. He's going to bring up Hunter Biden. He's going to bring up your IQ level even. He is going to be absolutely relentless. And what Joe Biden is communicating to all of us is that he's not going to be able to take it. You can't stand when a voter politely asks you to reconsider your stance on climate change. You, uh, If you don't tell people to not vote for you, you wag your finger in their face when they question you. How on earth are we supposed to believe that you're capable, that you have the temperament to take on Donald Trump, someone who will be absolutely as aggressive as, aggressive as you could imagine? The answer is... He can't. It will be a complete shit show if he's the nominee. God forbid. He will get demolished by Donald Trump. Donald Trump is going to call out the Hunter Biden scandal. And of course, Donald Trump has no room to talk. But is that hypocrisy going to prevent Trump from using anything he can against Joe Biden? No, and guess what? It's going to land when Trump brings up Hunter Biden and the fact that he got paid, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to work for an oil company when he had no experience and voters are going to side with Donald Trump. Ultimately, the Democratic Party's base will be demoralized because Joe Biden is not inspirational. He offers nothing. And then when Joe Biden tries to respond aggressively, he's going to stumble over his own words. He will, you know, act like his brain is melting. It's just... I don't even want to imagine it. So if you genuinely are voting for Joe Biden because you think he's the most electable, really, really reconsider your decision. 
because you are making a huge miscalculation. Progressives warned everyone back in 2016 that the best bet to go up against Donald Trump was not Hillary Clinton. It was Bernie Sanders, but everyone concerned trolled about that socialist label, not really realizing that if you want to energize the base, you've got to have someone who can appeal to young people. And that socialist label is going to be key in helping Bernie Sanders. Not to mention that when he's attacked by Trump because of that socialist label, Bernie's response is perfect. He says, well, yeah, I'm a socialist, but so is Donald Trump. It's just that he's a socialist for the rich and I'm a socialist for the poor. Like, there's nothing that Trump can say to Bernie that will rattle him. But basically everything that Trump says to Biden will rattle him. It will get under his skin and he will melt down and become unhinged. I mean, just last week, a reporter was confronted by him when uh, he did his whoa, 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 thing. I mean, uh, why are we even having this conversation? Why hasn't the media spoken to this? Why haven't they showed these clips, you know, th these compilations to voters and asked them, is this who you honestly believe can take on Donald Trump? I mean, just objectively speaking, if you think he's the most electable and you see his behavior, his performance at the debates, the fact that he's not going to turn out younger voters and nobody will be inspired to vote for him, do you honestly think he's going to beat Donald Trump? If so, you're fooling yourself. Now, there's a large portion of the electorate who are begrudgingly supporting him because they think that he is the most electable. We've got to reach out to those voters. We've got to reach out to them and let them know they are voting for someone who is a liability, who risks not just handing the White House to Trump for another four years, but the Supreme Court to Donald Trump for decades. We can't risk it. We can't gamble. Um, it's not going to be a cakewalk either way, but if you want to beat Trump, you put up your strongest person. It's not Joe Biden. It's Bernie Sanders. So I've previously talked about how, you know, as it becomes clearer and clearer that Joe Biden's cognitive capacity is declining, he's becoming almost more Trumpier as he lies more and more brazenly, as he exaggerates more. Like he says things about how his campaign crowds in Iowa are the largest out of any candidates, which is demonstrably false. He clearly is just morphing into Donald Trump. But it was really incorrect for me to characterize him that way because this video that I'm about to play for you shows that he really has always been this way. He has always been a compulsive liar and a serial plagiarist. Um, because back in 1987, when he was running for uh, to be president in the 1988 election, he basically had his campaign implode because he was busted not only lying about his life and his wife's life and his academic credentials, but he also plagiarized people multiple times, so much so that he was forced to end his campaign. Now, as civil rights activist Sean King explains in a newsletter, soon it was discovered that Biden had not just plagiarized those four speeches, but had lied about academic awards, lied about scholarships, lied about his ranking at Syracuse Law School, where he had nearly been kicked out for plagiarizing five entire pages of an essay, and that he also frequently lied about something that he had made a central part, not just of his 1988 presidential campaign bid, but of his entire public persona. And that paragraph is just a small snapshot of the issue. Uh, Sean King shared a video compilation of news uh, basically talking about Joe Biden's lies and just hammering him for it. And 
Bernie has got to take this and turn it into a campaign ad because if more voters see this, his campaign will be over. It is that devastating. So uh, without further ado, here's the video. It's relatively long, almost five minutes, but I assure you, well worth it. Democratic presidential candidate Joseph Biden today faces a controversy. Three weeks ago at a debate at the Iowa State Fair, he used phrases identical to those delivered by British Labor Party leader Neil Kinnock. Biden seemed to be claiming Kinnock's vision and life as his own. Why is it that my wife is sitting out there in the audience is the first in her family to ever go to college? Why is Glenis the first woman in her family in a thousand generations? To be able to get the university. My ancestors who worked in the coal mines in northeast Pennsylvania and come up after 12 hours and play football. Eight hours underground and then come up and play football. It's because they didn't have a platform upon which to stand. There was no platform upon which they could stand. The notion that every thought or notion or idea you'd have to go back and find and attribute to someone, I think is quite frankly, uh, ludicrous. The problem here is that Senator Biden told his audience he'd just been thinking about these things and he failed to give any credit at all to his famous British speechwriter. You know, I was thinking on the way over here. <laughs> now that's a little too much because as you point out, what's behind the words? What's there? And a lot of people, the rap on Biden has always been that it's just a surface. I should have said, to paraphrase Neil Kinnock, the only time I didn't in all the times I've ever used it. But CBS News found a tape of a second instance. It reappeared in the New York Times with a new charge that Biden had appropriated a famous litany from the late Robert Kennedy about what the gross national product cannot measure. It cannot measure the health of our children. The health of our children. The quality of our education. The quality of their education. The joy of their play. For the joy of their play. Biden gave Kennedy no credit. He has also quoted or paraphrased John Kennedy, Hubert Humphrey, and British Labor Party leader Neil Kinnock, all without credit. Joseph Biden admitted today that he committed plagiarism when he was in law school. He said it was a mistake, but that it was unintentional. He quoted five pages of someone else's work without proper citation. I've done some dumb things, and I'll do dumb things again. He was given an F. So ladies and gentlemen... I've been dumb. To the political community in Washington, it all seems of a piece. Plagiarism at law school, plagiarism on the stump. The great communicator, strike that. The great imitator. You don't steal verbatim, uh, or when you do, as he did 99% of the time, you give credit. Biden's critics say he sells himself as a man whose words and visions can inspire a new generation in politics. But if the thoughts, phrases, and visions really belong to others, it's a form of false advertising. Is it a wise idea, though, to take something that personal, anyway, from another politician and try and appropriate it to your own campaign? I think it was a stupid thing to uh, appropriate uh, material that was really very personal that was someone else's. Most people didn't know who he was, you know, Joe Biden, Biden and now they're going to say, oh yeah, he's the guy who plagiarized. That's a lot of people. First. Politically, that's devastating. These clips are devastating. He looks like a Joe Biden wind-up doll with somebody else's words coming out. If they're going to do things that are stupid as well as immoral, then they're probably too dumb to have the job of president. Voters are going to have to decide whether he was dishonest or dumb. Senator Joseph Biden may have more explaining to do. The new questions stem from taped remarks of, of Biden day. during an April campaign appearance in New Hampshire. 
I went to law school on a full academic scholarship, the only one in my, in my class uh, to have a full academic scholarship. Went back to law school and in fact ended up in the top half of my class. I was the outstanding student in the political science department at the end of my year. I graduated with three degrees from undergraduate school and 165 credits, only needed 123 credits. Biden now concedes he did not graduate in the top half of his law school class, that he does not have three degrees from college, and that he was not named outstanding political science student in college. Newsweek says Biden actually went to school on a half scholarship, ended up near the bottom of his class, and won only one degree, not three. Joe Biden ranked 76th in a class of 85 at the University of Syracuse Law School. I mean, this guy comes off this whole thing as a flyweight. Now Biden says Newsweek is right. His memory had failed him. And I'd be delighted to sit down and compare my IQ to yours if you'd like, Frank. Joe Biden was victimized by the truth. Bye-bye, Biden. He may not know it yet, but I think this is very going to be very difficult for him to recover. Is Joe Biden dead meat, yes or no? I think so. Bob? It's in terminal condition. Terminal. Eleanor? Yes, unless he comes in third in Iowa. <laughs> Morton? Dying. I say dead. Yikes. Now, I think what stood out to me the most is the fact that the media was actually doing their job and being objective and telling you the facts. We have evidence that he plagiarized, you know, uh, different speeches. We have evidence that he lied about his life and his academic career. Here are the facts. But now... The media is going out of their way to run interference for Biden. I mean, we all remember just last week or the week before when Zephyr Teachout published an article in The Guardian where she calls out his corruption and everything in that article was correct. The media basically um, took it as an attack and pressed Bernie Sanders' team to explain why they thought he was corrupt rather than just educating us on the details of his corruption, how he was influenced by, you know, the banking industry. He voted to make it so that way students with loan debt can't file bankruptcy. I mean, how could you not point out the corruption? Why is it an open question? So, I mean, it just goes to show you that the media in that time span has absolutely deteriorated. They were doing their job back then, and now they won't even touch the issue of Joe Biden's corruption. And it just, that's that's one portion of the story anyways, but I digress. Like, listen to what they say about him. I pulled a couple of quotes. If they're going to do things that are stupid as well as immoral, then they're probably too dumb to have the job of president. This was in mainstream media. They quoted somebody saying that. Can you imagine them having someone on that would say that about Joe Biden now? Um, voters are going to have to decide whether he was dishonest or dumb. Unbelievable. I mean, the facts speak for themselves. He was a compulsive liar and a serial plagiarist. Has he changed much? He claims that um, he has the most progressive record. He said something like that. I'm paraphrasing, of course. Um, on top of that, he lied about his Iraq war record when we have videos of him. He lied about wanting to cut Social Security when we have videos of him saying that he would put it on the table for cuts. I mean, he is a serial liar. But when you understand that this is part of his history and his behavior, it's not that shocking at all. And towards the end, when he was talking about, you know, IQs, I'm assuming he was talking to a reporter about wanting to compare IQs. I mean, what does that sound like to you? It sounds like Donald Trump. Look at this tweet. Sorry, losers and haters, but my IQ is one of the highest, and you all know it. Please don't feel so stupid or insecure. It's not your fault. I mean, Joe Biden is the Democratic equivalent 
of Donald Trump. For all of the media's attempts to make it seem like, you know, Bernie's supporters are like Trump voters and uh, Bernie Sanders is like Donald Trump, no, it's Joe Biden. And I don't mean that as a compliment. I'm not trying to suggest that Joe Biden is a populist or anti-establishment. I'm saying it's going to be a weakness for him because you need someone who will be the antithesis to Trump's demagoguery. And I mean, Joe Biden, imagine if he's the nominee. That would demoralize the Democratic base. Young people would not turn out. It's basically a guarantee in my mind that Trump would get four more years. So, I mean, my message to people who are still on the fence or they're planning on voting for Biden because they've bought into this idea that he's the most electable. Look, trust your gut. Look at the evidence. Understand, it's not Joe Biden. If you are genuinely only concerned with defeating Donald Trump, not only has his behavior on the campaign showed that he's not the person capable to take on Trump, but throughout his career, he has shown that this is not someone who should be representing the Democratic Party, right? We're trying to move in a more positive, progressive, populist direction. And here you have someone who is a serial liar, who's going to possibly be the nominee. Not acceptable at all. So this video needs to be shared far and wide. I'm sure that older Biden supporters know about this, but you have to remind them of who Joe Biden really is. You have to remind them of his record. Remind them that this is the individual who wanted to cut Social Security. Remind them that Joe Biden is not the person who turns out young voters. Look at the polling data. So if you want to be Trump, you've got to turn out young voters, you've got to excite the base. After seeing this video, can you honestly tell yourself that Joe Biden is going to excite the base? I don't think anybody can say that after seeing that video. So he has a history of being someone who is an opportunist, and that hasn't changed now. He's just as opportunistic and career-minded as ever. It's just that now, you know, he's a little bit more brazen about it, and uh, I guess cares a little bit less. But, you know, his record is going to come back to haunt him as it is now, and um, he's showing he's not the person for the job. So I've got a really quick clip that I wanted to share with you guys from Showtime's The Circus featuring an interview with Michael Moore. He makes a really simplistic, albeit really powerful point, and he talks about electability and who is best positioned to beat Donald Trump, and he explains pretty bluntly why Joe Biden is not the person that we want to take on Donald Trump if we're serious about defeating him. I would say we have to have our focus on Biden because there is an ideological battle afoot here. Where is the future of the Democratic Party? Are we going to be centrist and moderates and be quiet and don't make too many, don't rock the boat too much? Or are we going to be a progressive party where we go to the future? It sounds to me like you're saying those are on a collision course. That's a fight for the soul of the party. That's okay, though. That's, is that, that's that, a good fight that is what you see coming, Yes, right? it is not coming. It's here. It's here. What do you then say to people in this, in this party who are just normal Democrats who want nothing more than to beat Donald Trump? Listen, here's the, here's the problem. Joe is Hillary. Hillary is Al. Al is Kerry. And Kerry is Mondale. When we try to play it safe, that's when we lose. That is exactly right. And everyone needs to hear what Michael Moore is saying here because his point is absolutely valid. Whenever we play it safe, we lose. 
And there is a history of Democrats who are milquetoast, centrist, neoliberals losing. Al Gore, Mondale, John Kerry, Clinton. I mean, Obama is someone who, you know, just based on D.C. orthodoxy, shouldn't have been electable, right? But he won. Obama won. Somebody named Obama won in the United States. It's remarkable, right? But it was uh, probably risky to a lot of D.C. insiders. But you see, the thing is that when you try to play it safe, what happens is you don't excite the base. And what Democratic Party strategists and operatives need to realize is that if Democrats want to win, they have to remember one thing. Turnout. Turnout, turnout, turnout. Write it on the back of your fucking hand. Tattoo it on your forehead. You will win if you turn out the vote. Republicans will win if you do not turn out the vote. It's why get out the vote campaigns are so crucial and why Hillary Clinton was also damaged was because the DNC was worried that if they started their get out the vote campaign too early back in 2015, it could help elevate Bernie Sanders. So they decided to forego that until the general and we all saw how that turned out. So anytime we're talking about elections, turnout, you have to have someone that will make turnout higher than usual. That's the only way to defeat the Republican. It doesn't matter if it's Donald Trump. It doesn't matter if it's at the state level. Turnout is Democrats' key to success. Now, I'll admit that it's not just about electing or nominating someone who can excite the base, because there are a lot of barriers that Republicans put up to suppress the vote. You know, uh, voter ID laws, uh, voter purges from the rolls. There's a lot that they do, but that is evidence that they know what their ticket to victory is. They want to suppress the vote, keep turnout as low as possible, so that way they win. Democrats have to know this. Like, they, they, they can't not know this. If you are a Democratic strategist and you're not emphasizing the need to turn out the vote and excite the base, you should be fired. You absolutely should not have a job because that's your ticket to victory. Who turns out the base? Who gets people fired up? It's Bernie Sanders. If you want to win, you're not going to win without the youth vote. And like it or not, young people, millennials, Zoomers, will decide the outcome of this election if we turn out or not. If we turn out, Democrats win. If we stay home, Democrats lose. You just need to nominate someone who is going to energize the base, get disaffected voters back, and get young people excited. Who has double digits? One of the only candidates in a recent poll with double digits. He had 44% of the vote of people under 50. It'd be higher if you control for millennials and Zoomers. It's Bernie Sanders. And it's so obvious that anyone who makes an electability argument in mainstream media, like, I can't help but think they're dumb or disingenuous because this is something that we've known. How did Obama win? Turnout was high. How did Democrats retake the House in 2018? Turnout was high. Not because of centrism, but because there was a lot of progressive candidates across the country because people felt like they had a reason to come out and vote. So we have to galvanize the electorate. Biden is the worst possible person to do that. Pete also, um, Amy Klobuchar, I think you're really rolling the dice with Elizabeth Warren. But if you really want to guarantee that we have the best possible chance of beating Donald Trump, as Michael Moore puts it, we can't play it safe. We have to take a risk. Maybe it won't pay off. Maybe that incumbency advantage 
is too strong for Donald Trump. Maybe, you know, people buy into the lies about the economy being great currently. We don't know. We can't predict the future. But what we do know is that we played it safe in 2016 against Donald Trump. And the most qualified candidate lost to the biggest clown in America. We played safe. That's when we lose. And to bring up the history of this, you know, Joe is Hillary. Hillary is Al. Al is Kerry. Kerry is Mondale. When are people in the establishment media going to get it through their heads that if we're talking electability, we're talking who can turn out the base. That's the crux of the electability argument, or should be at least. So, I mean, this is such a great way to explain it. We absolutely cannot afford to play it safe. Sometimes you've got to take some risks. Obama was a risk. A lot of people didn't think that a one-term senator whose middle name was Hussein would be able to win, but he won regardless. And if you don't think that a socialist can beat a fascist demagogue, then, you know, you need to brush up on your history because America has a history of radicalism. America has a history of pushing the envelope. That's how we got civil rights. That's how we ended slavery. That's how we have accomplished so many amazing things. So America really does have a history of radicalism. And I have a book by Dr. Harvey J.K. who explains this. We have a history of being radical, and the way that we win is to make America radical again. So if you think that we're going to beat Trump by playing it safe, you're going to be horribly disappointed come November 3rd. So if you want to beat Trump, vote Bernie. He's the most electable because he can turn out the highest number of voters and win back the Rust Belt. In those districts that flipped from Obama to Trump, Bernie can win them back. Joe Biden cannot. Establishment, milquetoast neoliberal politics, it's not going to work. It's not going to win you back the White House. You've got to go for someone like Bernie Sanders who can excite the base. So as many of you know, billionaire Mike Bloomberg is running for president and, you know, the first thing that he's clearly trying to do is convince all of us peasants that he is just like us and um, he's human. Except the problem is that he's not being very convincing at uh, showing us that he's human because he's making decisions that just show how out of touch he is. And like, you're a billionaire, you're going to be out of touch, but Tom Steyer is a billionaire. Even he is less out of touch than Mike Bloomberg. And I don't like Tom Steyer. But I mean, when you compare the two, it's clear that one of them is, uh, you know, more human and the other is possibly an android. Like we're, we're talking like 50-50 chance that he is straight up just an android. Um, so the campaign you'd think would help, would try to make him more personable. You know, I'm sure that when Elizabeth Warren launched her campaign, when she did that Instagram live stream where she got a beer all weirdly and awkwardly, that was what her campaign staff tried to do. But Mike Bloomberg's team just seems to be like making him lean in to the fact that he is possibly a robot. And uh, one of the most, you know, the biggest example that shows that he may be a robot and is definitely not a normal person is when Team Bloomberg tweeted out this video with zero context. Where's my ice cream? Ah, thank you. Mmm, big gay ice cream is the best. Anybody? Um, so my first reaction to that was, why is the ice cream gay? Like, is he trying to be, like, cool? 
and like say, oh, this this ice cream is so gay, which wouldn't necessarily mean that it's it's cool. That would mean that it's it's gay if you thought that gay men stupid. If we're going back to the two thousands with lingo there, um, so I had no idea what the fuck he was talking about. And second of all, like this is the guy who tried to ban big gulps. So why is he eating ice cream? Assuming it's filled with sugar, wouldn't he want to ban it and not try to eat it? Now. One of my Twitter followers said that apparently Big Gay Ice Cream is an ice cream shop in New York. Okay, well, how are we supposed to know that? Like, I live in Oregon. I don't know what the fuck Big Gay Ice Cream is. How am I supposed to know that that's the name of an ice cream shop when you just tweet out a 10-second video of him saying, Mmm, I love Big Gay Ice Cream. What? I mean, that's like me just saying, Hey, I love Muchos. People would say, what the fuck is that? They wouldn't know that that is a delicious Mexican restaurant in Beaverton, Oregon. Nobody would know that. Hence why you need to supply people with context. Um, so, I mean, if you're, if you're trying to prove to us that you're not a robot, you're not helping. Now, the biggest evidence that Bloomberg is not a human being and that he is straight up just robot, reptilian, I don't know, is this interaction that he, that he had with a dog... <laughs> I've watched this video like 25 times. So he um, encountered a dog. <laughs> Rather than like scratching its head or something or scratching its ear, he grabbed the dog's fucking face and shook it as if it were a hand. I'm not kidding. Take a look. I've, I've seen this video <laughs> like 30 times and wow, who does that? Who does that? And it took me forever to realize that he was like trying to emulate a handshake, albeit with a dog. But if you've ever come into contact with dogs before, you know that one might be able to shake hands. Just, you know, do, do this. And then maybe the dog will put its paw in your hand. But what does he do? He walks up, grabs the dog's fucking face, and shakes it like a fucking weirdo. Like, serial killers do this. <laughs> what the fuck are you doing? And the look on the dog's face is just like, what the fuck, man? <laughs> like the dog didn't know what to do so the dog tried to play it off and just like yawn <laughs> American politics is so stupid <laughs> now the internet reacted to this I'm crying but um and I've seen this so many times but it's still funny the internet reacted and you know had the same response that I had like why are you grabbing the dog's face, you fucking weirdo? So he responded by releasing an ad to totally prove that he just, he loves dogs. Mike Bloomberg is the man to lead us. He will create more jobs. Mike's not afraid of the NRA, not one bit. Trust me, Mike will get it done, yeah. <laughs> get it yes. done, yes. He does not tweet. Oh. I like Mike. I like Mike. I lick Mike. I'm Mike Bloomberg's dog. I approve this message. 
I'm Mike Bloomberg, and I approve this message. Stop. Stop. Shut it down. Shut it down. <laughs> oh, my God. I almost want him on the debate stage, even though I'm against billionaires, like, buying their way onto the debate stage. I almost want him on the debate stage just to, like, observe his behavior. Because this is not a normal human being. Like, as much as he's trying to personalize his campaign and make it seem like he's down, you know, uh, down with the peasants and he's just like one of us. No, not buying it. I mean, look at these pictures. You can see him here. You know, he's just clearly miserable with this woman who I'm assuming is a supporter, but he doesn't look very happy to be in her company. Um, you have him, I guess, almost high-fiving this girl, but not wanting to make direct skin contact with a peasant because I'm assuming he thinks that, you know, we have germs. Although, you know, while wearing gloves, he is less likely to catch diseases from peasants. So, you know... He is willing to shake their hands in this instance, although I'm assuming he is going to throw away that glove afterwards or burn it. And, you know, as a body language expert myself, right here, he's crossing his arms to signal that, you know, he's closing himself off and he doesn't want that peasant to go any closer to him. That distance is fine, but it's, you know, any closer and you're going to be making Mike Bloomberg feel uncomfortable. And here you have him enjoying a game like all the peasants do. And, you know, in this picture, you can see he's really enjoying this game. <laughs> Look, the point of democracy is representation of the people. Michael Bloomberg is not a person. This is a robot. And he he doesn't even know how to interact with the dog. Like, normal humans just instinctively want to scratch a dog's ear or pet it. He grabbed its face, and seeing him utterly miserable talking to people, it, I just, I don't understand. Like, if you are a billionaire and you have so much money, more so than you'd ever be able to spend, even if you were lucky enough to live to be 10,000 years old, why not just retire? Why not just retire to one of your, I'm assuming, like 30 mansions? Retire. Buy an island. Live there. I just, it makes no sense to me why, if you're that wealthy, you would try to do something like this. Like, I don't think that Donald Trump wanted to actually become president. I think he was using his 2016 campaign as a stepping stone for, like, some sort of a network. But now he is clearly miserable. He hates his job, dislikes the campaign part. So, I mean, why would you want to do that as well? You're rich. Just just go away. I mean, you're not offering voters anything. You don't support Medicare for all. I don't know how you'd be different than Donald Trump. I mean, what, maybe we get more centrist Supreme Court justices? That's it? I, I just... It makes no sense to me why billionaires feel so hell-bent on influencing American politics when no matter what the U.S. government does, it's not going to change their lives at all. So I'm done talking about Mike Bloomberg. Uh, this is not a human being. This is quite possibly um, the most obvious android, not fooling anyone. And I can't get over the dog video. I still can't get over it. 
Hello, everyone. I am here with six 2020 congressional candidates that you have heard about. They are returning to the show to talk about their campaigns and give us some updates. We have some huge news and some upcoming primaries taking place very, very soon. So I am excited to bring them back on the program. In this chat, we have Lauren Ashcraft running in New York's 12th congressional district. We have Joshua Collins running in Washington's 10th congressional district. We have Donna Imem running in Texas's 31st congressional district. We have Isaiah James running in New York's 9th congressional district. We have Jen Perlman running in Florida's 23rd congressional district. And we have Anthony Clark running in the 7th congressional district of Illinois. Uh, big things are happening for all of your campaigns, and I am so excited. So one by one, hopefully you all can um, give us an update about your campaign and tell us when your primary is taking place, because some of you still have some months, others not so much. So we'll start with you, Anthony. Uh, what has been happening since you came on the show? And um, if you could tell us when your primary is taking place, that'd be great. Yeah, definitely. Uh, thanks for having me back on. Truly appreciate it. What's up, everybody out there? Uh, tuning in and listening uh, and shout out to all the wonderful candidates that are on with us and that are not on with us, you know, keep fighting. Uh, so our primary date is March 17th, uh, early voting to start sometime in the middle of February. Uh, but, you know, I'm attesting this to appearing on the Humanist Report. It's because of you. It's because of the Humanist Report, you know, but we we searched, you know, uh, our social media presence has exploded. Uh, our presence on the ground, you know, the number of volunteers that I've been reaching out and joining us to canvas the phone bank uh, donations, increased fold. So uh, it's been wonderful to see uh, when you're part of a movement, you know, when you're part of something that's bigger than yourself as an individual, uh, when you put in that work and that energy and make not only within your district, but across the nation, uh, it's extremely powerful, you know, 100% of people powered. Uh, so like I say, we're doing well. You know, we actually have a huge town hall tomorrow in the Austin community at the Austin Library on Central uh, from 6 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. Uh, so we're looking forward to that. Uh, and, you know, just overall, the media presence has been beautiful. Uh, you know, we've had some viral tweets uh, that have gone out by just simply speaking truth to power in regards to the poverty draft, uh, military-industrial complex that exists, uh, in regards to, you know, the legalization of cannabis with a focus on racial justice, uh, in regard to reparations. So we just continue to push forward. We continue to fight. Uh, we're not only knocking for ourselves, but we are also knocking for Bernie Sanders, uh, within our district. Uh, so to see that progress and to see people, you know, truly understanding class struggle and class warfare, uh, the oppressors, the oppressors, has been a great thing. And once again, we thank the Humanist Report uh, for giving us an opportunity early on, uh, even prior to, you know, a lot of this momentum that we've been building. Well, thank you, because um, you all are just such phenomenal candidates. And I, it's it's hard to keep up with how many people are running. But this is a really good problem to have. And I'm just I'm inspired by you all. And you guys are surging because you are phenomenal candidates. So thank you, Anthony. Uh, Donna, you have a primary coming up very, very soon. So when is that taking place? And what has happened since we last talked to you? Yeah, so thank you so much for having us on your show. After I appeared on your show, something amazing happened. We got hundreds and hundreds of donations from your show. So thank you to every single person who donated. But the most interesting thing that we got were these handwritten letters that came from all over. And one of them came from a farmer in rural New York State who wrote how much he loved what I had to say and what I was doing with the community and what our campaign was doing. And that really touched us. And 
he wasn't the only one. There were just so many letters that came in and I'm truly moved by that. So thank you so much. Uh, lots of exciting things have happened to our campaign since this appearance. Uh, our primary is March 3rd and early voting starts only three weeks away, February 18th. So things are getting real. We are on the ground trying to reach out to people, let them know that they have a real choice in representation this year. But one of the most exciting things that has happened is that we got endorsed by the Texas AFL-CIO. And prior to that, we not only got recommended by the Austin Central Labor Council, but also the Central Texas Labor Council. And of all the people that are not sitting representatives, we were one of the few, very few, that got exclusive endorsement from the Texas AFL-CIO. So we are union strong. 240,000 union members have gotten behind our campaign. And that's one of the most important things because as you all know, we launched this campaign for the people who work for a living and now the people who work for a living are for us. That's incredible. Thank you so much for sharing. Uh, Lauren, uh, can you give us an update? Because you've been on a lot of indie media shows and you've been making the round. So how has it been going? And when's your primary taking place? Oh, so my primary is going to be on June 23rd. Uh, and I'm so excited. Actually, I, I want to echo what Donna uh, and Anthony have said is that Thanks to you and the Humanist Report and the viewers of the Humanist Report, um, we saw a lot of momentum start to build after I appeared on your show. And we can't do this without independent media. So thank you so much for having us. You're making a huge difference in this movement. And as you all know, if you're following my campaign, and I hope you do if, if you aren't currently, um, I am running because I want I have this vision that every single person has full and equal representation in my district, but also across the country. And it is so far from the truth right now. District 12 in New York represents such strong income inequality where we have billionaire row, but also so, so many people that are sleeping on the street tonight. So whenever I think about where we need to be headed, we need to be headed in a direction of people-powered grassroots candidates that have faced everyday people's issues that sit in <clears throat> and represent all of us, especially the working people who have gone completely ignored by a lot of members in Congress who are sitting there today. So because of you, you're making this very possible. And I'm, I'm just really, really thankful that this movement has has been growing. We started with three volunteers and negative $500 in March of last year. <laughs> and right now we're, we're getting close to six figures, which um, is nothing compared to an establishment candidate, but we're very proud of it because our average donation is $25. And, um, and also we have 275 volunteers. So that that's going to keep growing and we're really feeling the people power and momentum and really a lot of it is thanks to you so thank you mike well thank you because uh i am not doing anything i'm just uh, bringing you on and you know without you guys running such phenomenal campaigns with a message that resonates people wouldn't react in the way that they have been so i mean this is all you guys are all just you are showing people that you know there, there's hope and 
the reason why I think it's so important to bring people on from across the country, like New York, Florida, Washington, is because like this really is a national movement and everyone who donates, people who run for Congress, like we're all part of this. This is like one unified effort. So it's just, it really is encouraging to hear all of this. Um, now, I want to get to Joshua Collins because since the last time I talked to him, um, you had the incumbent dropout. And you've also gotten some national press coverage. I saw a profile from you in GQ. And that to me is like, it's bizarre because to see someone who is a socialist running for Congress get coverage from the national press, it's almost unheard of. So give us the update because I know you have quite a bit. And tell us when your uh, campaign uh, primary is coming up. Yeah, so uh, the biggest update is my opponent dropped out and announced he would be retiring at the end of this term um, and not seek re-election. Um, now, this was uh, unexpected to most people, but we kind of saw it coming. Um, you know, we were in a really strong position. We have had already fundraised more than every single progressive uh, challenger from Washington State in the last, like, several years. Um, and so we were already looking stronger than every single challenger. Um, and uh, now that he dropped out, um, immediately after, we raised 20, I think it was, almost $26,000 in the 48 hours after he dropped out. Um, and we're about to hit $140,000 raised in, in total for the campaign. Um, and, you know, it's been uh, a pretty exciting couple of months um, since he dropped. Um, you know, our volunteer uh, engagement has increased massively. Um, the Democratic Party actually um, stopped fighting me. Um, so we uh, were close to securing endorsements from Democratic Party or orgs in the district. Um, and we've kind of consolidated a lot of the left support in the, in the district. Um, the uh, number of volunteers uh, is well over 2,000 uh, nationwide, and it's uh, several hundred in the, in the district. Um, yeah, we are, like I said, we're close to $140,000, and our average donation is like $15.80. Um, and so, you know, we're getting a lot of small donations, but a lot of donations, uh, like overall. Um, and that's uh, been amazing. Um, just the number of people who have like been supporting us has been great. And I think the reason we're getting national media attention is just because of how big our social media presence is. Um, you know, if they put my name on an article or they put socialist truck driver as, as the title, it, it gets clicks. So I think that's why, you know, um, so far, it's it's been pretty cool because we got Huffington Post almost a year ago, and then now recently we got GQ, Teen Vogue, CNN, um, NBC, The Hill, like just almost all the like the online mainstream outlets have been covering our campaign, which has been cool. Um, and they uh, our TikTok blew up, like um, so I made a TikTok and made a bunch of videos on that. And that kind of is what led us to getting a lot of that national press too. Um, so yeah. Yeah, but other than that, you know, um, everything's going great. Um, we have a really good chance of winning for our election. So. That's incredible. And it, it's really cool because, like, back in 2018, when I was interviewing the first round of, like, progressive candidates, or technically yeah. the second round, you know, I brought on people like uh, AOC and Cori Bush and... Like, the general consensus was that, what are they doing? These are such long-shot campaigns. 
And, you know, now we know what happened. AOC is in Congress. We have Cori Bush running again, who is now a force. And now it's like the sense that I get is that you all are being taken very seriously now because you actually are a threat. And I think you're demonstrating that. And it's just it really is encouraging. So I want to get to Jen Perlman. So you're running in Florida against a political behemoth. Some of my viewers may have heard of her. Her name is Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Mm -hmm. So how is that going? And do you have any updates for us since the last time we talked? And when is your primary taking place? Okay, well, I actually have one of the very later primaries. So my primary isn't until August 18th. And but the important thing is that we have closed primaries. And so it's important that everybody be registered as Democrats by July 20th. So we have to make sure everyone registers specifically that way. Um, we've been doing really well. We've, we're, I think, at somewhere near 2,000 individual donations um, 12,000 Twitter followers. Like I'm amazed at, at how well we're doing. Um, and the key thing right now that we need is a field director. So we are actively searching for a field director. We, we've launched something called GenCore, which is um, a service campaign. We're actually, I think I might be like the first ever congressional service campaign. We're just basically going around to commissions, nonprofits, organizations, and asking how can we help you? And going to everything from beach cleanups to food delivery. Today, I was at Veterans Nursing Home, and I've got, like, this team of volunteers. And we're just out there doing service all throughout the district. And one thing that I wanted to ask you, Jen, that's amazing, by the way, is that it seems like you are running against a very high-profile uh, Democrat Um do you notice, I mean, it's difficult to say because you're not, you're only running against one person, obviously, and it's it's a subjective experience, yeah. but do, what is the general response? Like, do people kind of laugh at you as thinking, oh, well, this is a behemoth, you're not going to take her down? Like, is does it seem more difficult or does it make it more likely that you feel like your chances are, you know, better to win because people are so anxious to defeat someone like Debbie Wasserman Schultz? Um, yeah, I get both. I get mm. both. So like just today, somebody came up to me and gave me a hug because they heard I was running against Debbie Wasserman Schultz. I've, I've had so many people so thankful and appreciative. Um, and then within our district, though, there is this tight community of following where I do kind of get, you know, the establishment is not too pleased with me. I'm sort of a persona non grata. I, I occasionally go to Dem clubs, but for the most part, it's hard. Um, there's a lot of people in our district that, quite honestly, are afraid of her. So they might be supportive of me, but they would never say they were being supportive of me. There's a lot of stuff like that. But because of who she is, that's why we're able to raise the money that we're able to raise. So many people dislike her around the country. It's phenomenal. Yeah, that's that's definitely an interesting dy dynamic, and that's why I wanted to get your take on that. So I want to go to Isaiah, who is running in New York. Um, so I'm assuming it's the same primary date as Lauren's because she's also from New York. I've talked to multiple New York candidates who are just phenomenal. So um, we had you on, I want to say it was October, November, and I wanted to get an update from you as well because your campaign has also taken off. Now I can speak. Okay. There we go. <laughs> uh, yes, the campaign truly has taken off. And I just want to echo everybody here. I mean, you have no idea how much your viewers contributed to our donations. I mean, from the moment you put up the video when we did an interview, it was literally like thousands of dollars come flowing in. I was like, wow. We've received donations from 36 different states, from as far away as Alaska and Hawaii. And it's, it's, it's crazy to me that somebody who saw my interview in Alaska 
will contribute five or ten bucks to me in New York because they believe in the message that I'm talking about. Um, our volunteers list is growing every single day. Uh, as a matter of fact, we're doing a, a big first campus kickoff with all the volunteers this Saturday. We'll be in the district talking to business owners, voters, all those things. I was just running around today to the print shop, putting in orders for T-shirts and palm cards and door hangers and, and all that stuff. Uh, our social media following has grown. Uh, when we started, first did our first interview, I think I was at like 700, 800 followers, and now we're about to break 10,000. We've been verified. We got a little blue check mark. So if I write to somebody else with a blue check mark, they actually answer me back <laughs> because I have the blue check mark. Um, we've gotten some big endorsements. I don't think I wasn't endorsed by brand new Congress when we talked, but since we talked, I've been endorsed by brand new Congress and so are the other, a few of the other guests on here. Um, we've also been endorsed by Sean King, civil rights guy, Sean King reached out and endorsed us. And we've been endorsed by, uh, our revolution, our revolution, excuse me, uh, progressive revolution, uh, women's of Bernie. We've got a lot of endorsements. Um, since we've talked, last time it was uh, three people in the race. Now there's six people in the race. So three other people have now jumped in. A guy who ran as a Republican last time is now running as a Democrat. He jumped in. Another city council member jumped in, and another young man jumped in the race. Um, but we've been getting a lot of media coverage, but it's been like local press. It's hard for, you know, challengers to break into the national press. Yeah, I mean, that's why I applaud Joshua for his social media following because he's doing something right. But it's really hard to get media attention, especially in a place like New York City where things happen like a mile a minute. So, you know, they won't even focus on our campaign. But I think my opponents are or I know my opponents are sleeping on me. You know, they don't they don't take us seriously, but we have a campaign office. We have all these things now. And now they're finally starting to wake up like, oh, wow. That guy who's running in, in New York Nine is really serious about it. A couple of the videos I've put out have gone viral. I was at a protest in front of Chuck Schumer's apartment the other day, and I was yeah. speaking about the the need to uh, dismantle the military industrial complex. And that video got fifty thousand views in like a matter of days. And I also want to highlight a couple of my uh, comp compatriots here. Like I put out a call the other day, a fundraising call, because you know my opponents are going to sue to keep me off the ballot. They're gonna to try to knock me off the ballot. So we needed to hire an election lawyer. And I sent Anthony and Josh the tweet and without even hesitation, they were like, hey, they retweeted it, they shared it with all their followers and we saw thousands of dollars of support come in. So that's the type of community that all of us candidates, grassroots candidates around the country have. We don't have giant machines. We don't have you know, political wonks. It's just us and the people who we reach every day trying to trying to change the world. Yeah, and I, that's kind of what I've noticed. There is this really strong sense of community with everyone running. Not everyone is under the label of Justice Democrats or Brand New Congress or Democratic Socialists of America. Some have multiple endorsements, some don't. Some have AFL-CIO. It's just you all are kind of like going towards the same uh, direction and you all have this solidarity that it's palpable like you can really sense it that everyone is really looking out for each other so I kind of want to get to some individualized questions because you each kind of bring something so unique to the table and so many different experiences um, that I think you all can offer a lot not just to other candidates running but to viewers who I think are you know wondering how they can help you and whatnot so for Anthony you're the only person so far who has ran twice for Congress this is your second run and based on you know what I've 
uh, speaking with other people who ran twice, Corey Bush, you know, uh, Amy Vallejo who ran once, you do kind of sense that you know more going into this the second time of round. So I'm curious, what do you think is the biggest thing that you've learned running a second time that you didn't pick up on the first time? Because I think that, like, this is all trial and error. Like, none of us really know. Like, I don't know what I'm doing, like, in terms of, like, with interviews, what works, what doesn't work. So can you kind of just give us your input there? Because I feel like you've been in this for so long. You've been endorsed by a uh, brand new Congress. What would you say that we need to know having run twice now? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's a great question. You know, thanks for raising it. And, you know, first and foremost, to anybody that's going to watch this or hear it, if you're thinking about running, run. Uh, you know, we're in a time now, this is 2020, uh, we're in the wealthiest nation in the world. Currently, people are still poor to live. Uh, the wealth disparities continue to increase. So we all have to look ourselves in the mirror and ask ourselves what we're doing the risk and sacrifice for true systemic change. Uh, you know, we're not all going to run for Congress, but we all play a role in the movement. You know, progress is a We literally all play a role in helping this movement before. Uh, so the question you asked is important. Uh, you know, back in 2017, I was nominated by brand new Congress and Justice Democrats. And I'll be honest with you, I had no idea what to expect or what I was doing. Uh, you know, at that time, I'm still a public high school teacher. I was a high school teacher, uh, founder and director of my own nonprofit, Suburban Unity Alliance. You know, did a lot of work in the community. Uh, so I don't believe in individual accolades, but at Village of the Year, uh, but that's a movement award. Uh, but we didn't know what to expect. And the analogy I'll utilize, because I'm a huge Muhammad Ali fan, uh, you know, of course, one of his greatest books, service to others is the rent you pay for room here on this earth. I actually have it tatted on my arm. That's how much I believe in it. Uh, but it's like, before he was Muhammad Ali, he was Clay. And every fighter has a chance. You know, we're all fighters in this movement. That's why we're running. That's why we donate. That's why we support the phone bank. Whatever we do, that's the form of the fight. Uh, but it's getting that ring, that experience in the ring. And that first ran alongside, now Congresswoman, got to learn and know uh, Corey Bush, Amy, Paula Jean, and so many others, uh, we just needed that experience because the establishment, what they depend upon is money. You know, something in Illinois 7, for example, Danny K. Davis, he takes money from Big Pharma, he takes money from Amazon, he takes money from all these large corporations. So essentially, they don't have to, even though no matter what you should, they don't have to build relationships and make connections with the community uh, because they're dependent upon, you know, PACs and these large corporations and these billionaires uh, to fund them. Uh, so when we started grassroots fundraising, we just started from scratch. You know, it was extremely terrifying uh, to reach out to individuals because even though it's not for myself, it's for the movement. Still, you know how much individuals are struggling. You know how much individuals are out there trying to make decisions on a daily basis, uh, whether to put food on the table or to pay for print. And now I'm asking for five or $10. Uh, getting through that, you know, how to fundraise effectively, uh, learning how to target areas for door knocking and so on and so forth. The establishment, they froze us out. Uh, you know, so we didn't even have valid data back in 2017, 2018 in regard to where to strategically target voters uh, because the incumbents as well Many across this nation in the Democratic Party, they benefit from low voter turnout, they benefit from community divestment, and they don't count on individuals like ourselves 
truly getting out specifically to these impoverished and underserved communities and making those connections. Uh, you know, we were fast, uh, similar to what's happening with Isaiah. We were actually uh, challenged and sued. They tried to knock us off the ballot. Uh, so we had to raise over $13,000, go through a court case. Uh, that was that was an experience. Uh, you know, so we had to learn these issues. Uh, but now that we do, and now that we have data, we actually beat the incumbent without being experienced. We beat him in several precincts. Uh, we beat him in some wards. And we also lost in some wards. But now that we have that data, we're able to strategically target where we need to, you know, where we need to enter into uh, coalitions we need to build. You know, shout out to Chicago DSA, Democratic Socialists of America, shout out to DSA nationally, uh, Rizoma Collective, 25th Ward IPO, brand new Congress, people from Stanford, uh, our revolution, Buffalo Grove, you know, all these organizations, uh, you know, that have reached out and, and worked with us, uh, you know, 25th Ward IPO. We have strong coalitions, you know, Proviso Township. I could go down the list. District is huge. We know why gerrymandering exists. You know, gerrymandering is designed to keep incumbents in office. So it often takes more than one. So that's what I'm challenging individuals to do. If you want to run, run. Recognize, understand. <coughs> AOC is dope. You know, shout out to AOC, Congresswoman. Thank you for everything that you're doing, the fight that you're engaged in, the movement. But not everyone necessarily is going to have that experience where they win the first time. Uh, the incumbent crashed an event two years ago when I first ran. Looked me in my face and literally told me the reason he was going to win was because he had more money than me and name recognition. And literally his slogan was the name you know. Not what the hell he was going to do for the community. Not anything about policy. Literally for banking on name recognition. So that takes time. And I think that's the biggest difference, as you've asked, you brought up from that last election cycle. And now we have stronger coalitions built. We have way more endorsements. Uh, you know, we have that foundation. And I'll end it here. And how that's, you know, come to fruition and kind of like rear itself. In August, I was by a car. I was leaving a campaign event and literally hit by a hit and run driver. Uh, broke my leg, fractured my ankle, tore ligaments. If that would have happened to me the first time around, we would have because we'd have had zero infrastructure. We'd have had zero coalitions built to sustain and uplift because this is about a movement, correct? But because it happened this time around, though it was extremely difficult, I'm literally hopping around, you know, have a leg scooter, you know, door knocking and canvassing. I had so many other wonderful organizations and individuals ready and willing to pick up that flag because they believe in this movement that we are part of. And they sustained us through, you know, appearing on the Humanist Report. And in the December... We raised like $30,000 in, in a race like this to where the incumbent Danny K. Davis is not doesn't have a national presence. You know, he's not necessarily hated across the nation, but yet and still we have to change that blue no matter who narrative uh, because blue no matter who is not necessarily good for empowerment no matter what. Uh, we have to choose justice before civility and being able to see that growth in a, in a race like this that where we don't necessarily get national coverage. Uh, but now, you know, we're, we're getting talked about in BET, you know, MTV just did an interview. I'm traveling to L.A. to do an interview. Uh, just everything's coming together and it's potent. So I just challenge people, never be afraid to run no matter who you are. This is a working class core movement. If they tell you you need experience, our experience is the struggle. Our experience is day to day life when we're just trying to survive. And if they say that you don't have support, I guarantee you, you have support of the people. If you know how to speak struggle, struggle is the universal language. And whether you're in Iowa or Chicago, we understand it. 
So I just, again, can't say that enough. Run. Never let somebody tell you you can't. And if you decide to run once, always think about running twice. And if you don't get it twice, damn it, think about running three times. Make it happen. Yeah, that's incredible, incredible insight. And just to remind everyone, Ro Khanna, he didn't win the first time he ran as well. So sometimes this is like a sustained um, thing you have to do, which it's tough because I know that all of you are exhausted. I'm sure that you're you're all not really sleeping properly. You're doing so much, and this really is tremendous self-sacrifice. But you really see that passion. Like, you're, you're doing it because you know that there's going to be a payoff. Um, so yeah, that that's really great. Thank you so much for sharing that, Anthony. Um, I wanted to ask Donna about your race because you're running in a district where it's on the cusp of flipping from red to blue. So my question for you is what has the response there been? Because, uh, you know, in these other instances with like I Isaiah and Anthony, for example, where you have them getting sued to keep them off the ballot, is the establishment like just ignoring you completely like what's been the response and what are some of the difficulties in running this type of purple district yeah so one of the biggest challenges is what anthony mentioned which is right now they're the incumbents bank on the fact that people do not come out and vote in the primaries one of the biggest challenges when you go door to door people will tell you oh i mean there's a election coming up like most people actually don't know that there is a primary, especially Democrats. So if you look at 2018 data for my district, you will see a huge difference in the number of Democrats that came out and voted in the primary and number of Republicans that came out and voted. Our race is not being taken seriously by anybody. And it's sad in the sense that it's so close. It's one of the closest and you know competitive districts in the entire country. We talk about 2.9% for flipping blue, but it's only 8,000 votes. And we had more than 50,000 people move into just one of the two counties. Here's the interesting thing about this district is when you have six, a six-way primary and no one is an incumbent in a Democratic primary, what people bank on is the fact that you're really not going to do a lot to get out. And I want to echo Anthony here again. What our campaign is doing is completely unique in the sense that Texas's 31st district has never really been aggressively canvassed, reaching out to underserved communities, rural communities that have never been asked for their vote, that have never been knocked on their door and said, hey, this time around, you have a choice in representation. You have bold new representation. You have someone that's running for people who work for a living, people who need health insurance insurance and it doesn't matter whether you are you know you have a really great job or you don't because even if you have a great job in Williamson County you have a lot of affluent people but people get laid off and people realize that at a certain stage in your career you're up against things like age discrimination so it doesn't matter if you're really well educated and you have a good job or you don't or you're a server in a restaurant we're both struggling with the same challenges. If you have a child or a family member that is ill or cannot get health care, it doesn't matter whether you're middle class or upper middle class. You can't pay for $10,000, $20,000, $30,000, $50,000 of medical expenses. No one has that kind of money just stashed away. So this is a challenge that all of us are facing, and that's the message we're trying to get. Right now in the Democratic primary, in our district, because it's so crowded, most people um, 
from the establishment side are just letting things fall where they may. And this is the biggest advantage for us because we now have an opportunity to knock on doors and talk to people directly. I think the most important thing that your viewers should get away from this is that the establishment always talks about raising a lot of money, millions of dollars, right? The fact is this, canvassing, block walking, phone banking, these things are not millions of dollars. They don't actually cost millions of dollars. What well, costs millions of dollars of TV advertising. And that's not how most people are getting that information in the first place. So most people are focused on that. But what, what candidates, grassroots candidates like us need to do is we need to, yes, we do need money. Don't get me wrong. There's a certain threshold we need to get to. But once you get that, effectively using what you raise is the key to winning elections. Always remember this, money doesn't win elections, votes do. The last candidate who ran here raised a lot of money and did a really great job of closing the gap. But at the end of the day, if you wanna win elections, you have to go and ask for the votes. And that's what our campaign is doing. We're getting people excited. We have people calling us on a daily basis. Our volunteer list is growing. They call and they're like, what can I do for your campaign? Never seen anything like this in Texas's 31st district. How can I help? And that's what's exciting about it. Um, and we think we can definitely flip this with the working people in Texas's 31st district. That's exciting. It, it's like every single one of you, it, it's very clear that you're striking a chord. It's just a matter of like, will enough people learn about your campaign in time? And this is a question that I wanted to pose to Lauren because you're running against a lesser known Democrat, but she is incredibly entrenched in the establishment. And at the beginning, you know, she probably didn't take you seriously, but now she's realizing that you're building a huge movement. You're receive receiving these endorsements. Um, and on top of that, you're a comedian who's running for Congress, which I think is amazing. I saw one of your stand-up clips and it was great. It was great. I watched it on YouTube. It was phenomenal. So you you guys, like, you you have just that appeal as being normal human beings. But on top of that, you're a comedian, so you have that extra charm about you. So what is it like to go up against a political behemoth who has the entire establishment behind like have you seen any type of obstacles in the sense that they've tried to sue you or keep you off of ngp uh van can you just talk through some of these obstacles because it really is a huge task to take on someone who is that entrenched oh i mean it is it's always intimidating this is the first time i've ever run for anything and to go up against somebody who whose majority of their funding comes from corporate PACs is um it really just shows how important it is that we are grassroots funded and that our average donation is, is $25, which is amazing because it, um, whenever we're looking at the occupations of people that donate to me, one of the most common ones is unemployed. So what it's telling me is that people um, who are experiencing struggles right now find hope in our message and what we're fighting for and trust that I am fighting for it. And whenever you compare my finances to my opponents, you know, I'll, most of hers are, are really big donations and um, we're really proud of, of our grassroots funding. So um, it's intimidating, but the, the fact that we have seen so much momentum, especially in the, in the last quarter or two, um it it's becoming very real that we can win this we have a real path to victory don't mind the cat <laughs> 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 um 
but yeah, I mean, I am, I am a comedian. So part of, part of the territory is having a backbone and having some pretty thick skin, even though I am pretty nice. So, um, you know, she, she can come at me with her money and we're just going to keep knocking on doors. One of the biggest things that we're seeing because we have been out knocking doors since last March is that um, whenever we ask, you know, do you know who your current representative is? Most people say no. Even yeah. if we even if we mention her name, they're like, I don't know who that is. It's like, okay, fine. Well, I'll tell you why this election is so important. I'm the first person who has, who's ever knocked on their door. And I get to tell them why it's so important that they vote for me. She hasn't made that connection. And, and this election is open to be won by a grassroots candidate. We're out there, we're, we've been working really hard, we're making connections with people. Tomorrow, um, on Thursday, January 30th, we're going to have another comedy show with John Fugelsang, Kate Willett, and Katie Halper. And we're really excited to have their support and also to keep spreading the message in the most authentic way that I know. And part of that is comedy. So our campaign is fun. It's also real and you can see me yelling on Twitter every day, multiple times a day. <laughs> There's a lot to be angry at, but especially with a coalition like this, um, with so many grassroots candidates running across the country for the right reasons, um, it's really exciting. I see the light at the end of the tunnel. I see a lot of hope in this coalition of candidates and also ones that aren't on this call, but I'm very, very supportive of. That's so exciting. I love how you each kind of bring something unique. Like I think using comedy and kind of like intertwining that with rallies is is brilliant. And I am I'm really excited to see how that turns out and to have people like, you know, Katie Halper and John Fuglesan, like actual people coming out who have a lot of, you know, uh, capital in the comedy world and who people know. I think that's so exciting. And so you're all using something unique. And I got to ask Joshua about his use of TikTok, because one thing that I think a lot of people realize is the value in uh, social media. It's what AOC kind of used to catapult her to victory. But you've kind of emerged as this like viral TikTok sensation, Joshua. And I'll be 100% honest. I just learned about TikTok like not that long ago because I am terribly out of touch with the, you know, the youth. Um, so tell us what your strategy is because you've managed to be successful in TikTok and Twitter. And what is your, like, what is basically the main thing that you do? Is it comedy with policy? Like what's, what's your goal and um, your strategy there? Um, I don't know. I guess my biggest strategy on social media is to uh, not put too much effort into crafting anything. Um, people can kind of sense when something's like overproduced. And so I'm, I'm careful not to like make anything sound too wonky or sound like it was like a written for like a college essay or something, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I think that helps a lot. Um, it also helps that like, if I were elected, I would be the youngest member of Congress. Um, um, I just grew up with this stuff. Like, I don't know. I don't remember a time without the internet. So I've been on like social media and other platforms like uh, my whole life. So um, it, like as long as I can remember. And so it, it kind of is just something like you either know the culture or you don't. Um, uh, and I, I do have some extent of like, I kind of understand humor, humor, even though I'm uh, uh, still a millennial. Um, like I kind of, I spend a lot of time talking to Gen Z and stuff. So um, 
the radical policies really helps a lot too. Um, the the younger generation is very radical, um, so I think uh, that's a big part of it. Um, and yeah, um, I don't really put too much effort into TikTok. I put like a video out every couple of days, and um, sometimes like once a week. And they usually take me like five minutes to make, and um, yeah, and it usually does pretty well. So. That's exciting. See, I'm I'm more from the Vine generation. I really liked Vine a lot, so I'm I'm a little bit bitter, um, you know, apprehensive about jumping onto TikTok. But I, I'm curious, like, without the use of like TikTok and Snapchat and whatnot on social media, do you think that you would be where you are, or do you honestly think that the most important thing is like the the door knocking, the grassroots? Like, I'm sure that there's there's a combination of both. They're equally valuable. But do you, how instrumental do you think that social media has been in building your campaign to the point that it's at? Well, um, it's, it's been my biggest asset, um, for the campaign. Um, it not as a thing to get votes, like just to be clear, um, the role it has served is, a, is getting me name recognition within the district, getting me a lot of positive press, uh, getting me volunteers, uh, really talented staff. Like when we were hiring for certain positions, we got so many, like really qualified people applying to work for our campaigns just because I have a really big reach. Um, our volunteer number, um, especially since I started using TikTok, has increased so much. TikTok is um, like uses like location services now. So um, if you are in the area, you're more likely to see my videos. Um, and Instagram's been really helpful for that too. So we have gotten a lot of on the ground volunteers from social media. Um, 100% of our fundraising has been on social media um, and so yeah we've raised almost $140,000 with just Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and TikTok. That's really interesting to know. Um, okay, so talking about the unique dynamics of the races. So I've talked to a lot of candidates from the state of New Jersey. Uh, shout outs to uh, Russ Tirincione, uh, Zina Spazakis, Hector Oseguera, who I had on, uh, I think, the week before last. Um, and basically a consensus is that a lot of people feel demoralized in the state of New Jersey because the politics there is just overtly corrupt, almost uniquely corrupt. And I also get that sense that in Floridian, Floridian politics, that's kind of the same thing. So Jen, I'm curious, in that type of environment, do people feel demoralized? And do you kind of feel like the weight of the establishment trying to uh, squash your campaign, essentially? Because I remember back in 2016, um, Debbie Wasserman Schultz was trying to crush her primary opponent back then, um, Tim Canova, by cutting off access to NGP Van and whatnot. So have you experienced any types of ob obstacles like that um, in your experience running? Um, not really since the very beginning. And the very beginning was right around when the DCCC issued that fatwa on any consultants that would possibly help challengers to incumbents. And that made it difficult in the beginning. We originally lost our compliance officer and some people that couldn't do that. So, but I mean, for the most part in my district, the people that are the establishment super voters, it's, it's hard to say. Some of them are just, you know, they're with her because they with her. Some of them are with her because they're scared of her, but they're not really giving me that hard of a time. Even the ones that do support her, I kind of, I've been doing this now since, last January. So I've been doing this for a year. And I've, and most of that was before anybody even knew that I was actually doing this. So a lot of these people, as much as they kind of don't want to like me, 
they kind of do just because I've been there. And so I'm not an outsider to them. So I, I don't think that it's as easy for them to dismiss me, even if they do support Debbie. So that's, you know, been really in district, but you know, the party, as far as statewide, they're kind of just seemingly staying out of it, which I appreciate. And I, I'm not sure if that's just because we're still, you know, however many months away from August, but we haven't had that much trouble from them. And we do have, I mean, we have access to their list. It's just a matter of paying for it. So, you know, that's been pretty standard. I, I feel fortunate so far with that. Um, but yeah, you know, the, the people that are her people generally give me a little bit of, you know, I get the attitude. I have people ask me, why would I do this? Yeah. You know, as if I'm, I'm doing something so horrible. I still am bitter when I watched, I'm sure we all saw um, the Knock Down the House documentary when AOC was handing out flyers and somebody just dismissed her and said, I'm voting for Joe Crowley. Like, I'm still bitter at that person, like in my mind, for just completely <laughs> disregarding her. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll give you a list. I can give you a list of, of those people. I, I keep like a mental list of those people. And it usually <laughs> is more of, a, of an eye roll. I'll say, hi, I'm Jen. I'm running for Congress. Oh, what district? 23. And I'll get... <laughs> That's Debbie's seat, and and I've actually taken to to take it to say actually no, it belongs to District Twenty Three. But um, I could see you know she's been there so long, I could see why you would think that. Um, but yeah, I just at this point, I just sort of laugh at it. Yeah, there's nothing else you can do. That's it, and we're we're reaching out outside of the party so much and bringing in people that are not part of that. So I really spend most of my time not with that. And I like it a lot. So, you know, we do everything, like I said, vet clubs, community gardens, anything that we can do to help. So I'm really staying busy away from the, um, the party machine. Yeah, I, I don't blame you at all. Um, so I wanted to ask Isaiah, because you're running for Congress, and we know about the difficulties, but just as a candidate for the viewer, if you had to inform us about what it's like to be a candidate and like the one thing that could give you a boost that we can or can't do in terms of like just getting you to that next level, what do you think it would be? And I know this is such a broad question, but if you could like really, you know, um, think of one thing that would really help you, whether it be media coverage or just more money, what do you think would really put you on to that next level? Okay, so I'll answer in the order you asked them. I was having a conversation about this last night. And a lot of your viewers who have seen my video before know I'm a, a veteran. I'm a combat veteran. I've been to combat three times, and this is the most mentally challenging thing running for office that I've done in my life. And wow. it's, it's, that, it's that way because I know what I'm fighting for. I know how serious the situation on the ground in my district is and on the ground around the country and, quite frankly, around the world. I know the, the deleterious effect that money has on our body politic and how it has corrupted our politicians and they suffer from this, this, this moral turpitude of just giving every big company a seat to the, at the table. So, and I'll be honest with you, and I'm sure my fellow candidates can tell you, attest to this, there are times where you want to quit. There are times where you, where you think about it, you're like, why am I doing this? But then you, you, you're, you're you're, you're buoyed by the fact that you know why you're doing it. This is not, I've had people tell me, oh, you want to be the next AOC. As if I want people with cameras in my face all the time. I'm a very private person. 
You know what I mean? So I don't want that. But when I walk down Flatbush Avenue and I see the same homeless guy I see for years walking down Flatbush Avenue, and people look at him as if he's invisible. When I walk in the neighborhood where my father immigrated from and I see where his old home used to be, and now there's these giant high-rise apartments that nobody can afford, I know why I'm doing it. When I meet with my local congressman or congresswoman who I'm challenging now on the issues and behind closed doors, she talks about she's not going to give up support for all these big businesses and she's not going to stop taking corporate money. Then, damn it, we have to do something. You know, the time to do what's right is always now. And like Anthony said, if you're thinking about running, do it because the problems that we're facing aren't going to go away just because you don't decide not to run. You know, most people work a nine to five, but income inequality works 24 hours a day. It does not stop. You know, I mean, right now there are big executives carving up neighborhoods, cutting pensions, planning to lay off workers, planning to shortchange us, figuring out how not to pay taxes. Right now there's somebody sitting in jail for a ticket they couldn't pay or a joint that they had in their pocket. So just because you decide not to run, all the things that need to be fixed aren't going to fix themselves. So we have to fix them. So, I mean, that, that's what keeps me going at times when I get, when I get low or when I get like, you know, this is, and to echo Jen, how Debbie Wasserman had her, her seat for the longest, the, the, the person I'm challenging, her mother was a city councilwoman. The daughter inherited the mother city council seat and then worked as an aide for the congressman that she eventually replaced and has been there for 14 years. So talk about a political dynasty. In my district, you're running against Yvette Clark. Oh, that's Una Clark's daughter. Okay, that's good. God bless both of them. But what has she done in 14 years? Absolutely nothing. So that, that's, that's the, the thing that folks should know. And I hearken back to my days in basic training when my drill sergeant told me when I was almost ready to quit basic training. He said the easiest way through something tough is straight through it. It's not to circumnavigate. It's not to go. It's hit it head on and go straight through it. So I know this is a tough fight, but I just have to keep pushing forward and keep pushing forward. Because like AOC said, it knocked down the house. You brought it up. I watch that at least once a month for inspiration. I'm not even joking because... I, I, I do because I'm like, man, I feel terrible. I watched the video and I'm like, they felt the same exact way that I feel. So we have to keep pushing. Um, the thing that we could always use more, and I'm sure every candidate here will tell you that, is money. Like I said, our average donation is $23. We haven't had a max donor yet. We haven't had somebody max out $2,800. And nine times out of 10, if you can, if you can donate $2,800 to a political campaign, you're probably in the 1% of society. If you have just $3,000 to give to a candidate, you probably not the, per the people that, that need help the most. So we could just use more small dollar donations. I'm telling you, when, when I appeared on your show the first time, I was, I was amazed to see how many people watched the video for one, the positive comments that were on the video and the donations that came through. Because what you think, Texas has a political machine or Florida has a political machine. Damn it, New York has Tammany Hall. It's real. I mean, I'm pretty sure they're going to sue my slate mate, Lauren. Carolyn Maloney's probably going to sue Lauren Ashcraft to keep her off the ballot. I promise you that. We need 1,250 signatures, 1,250 signatures to get on the ballot in New York. 
if we get anywhere near that, we're not making the ballot. We're shooting for 10,000 signatures mm. because that's, that's how corrupt our political system is. That's how pervasive dark money has become. That's how bought and paid for all of the people we're going up against are. I know Joshua's <laughs> opponent dropped out, but he's a corporate Democrat too. And it's not only right for us to check Republicans, we must check Democrats as well. Because if you look at the donations, these PACs give to these candidates equally. They'll give to Republican incumbents and Democratic incumbents. They don't give a damn who's in power. All they care is they have access to whoever's in power. And we're seeing that that whatever we've been doing up until now has led us to where we're at. And we are in a very bad place in America where there are tens of millions of people who can't afford health insurance, who can't afford to pay off student debt, who are losing their homes, there are hundreds of thousands of people across this nation sleeping on the streets. So whatever we've done to get us this point is not going to be enough to where we need to get to tomorrow. So we all have to fight. Yeah, that's absolutely beautifully put. It's it's a lot. Like, I can't imagine. Like, I've never ran for Congress, and I don't think I ever could after hearing from all of you and just all the amount of sacrifice. So this is why I say if people kind of are with me on that and they don't ever see themselves running for Congress, then the way that we can contribute is by helping all of these phenomenal candidates who all are bringing something wonderful to the table. And I'm so honored to talk to, you know, six future members of Congress. Um, you guys are running amazing campaigns. And before we go, I just want to take the time to one by one, refresh everyone's memory about the primary date, because there's a lot of dates we're trying to balance and what we can do to help you individually in your unique race. Um, Lauren, we'll start with you. Oh, so my primary date is June 23rd. I am in New York's 12th district, and we can have the Green New Deal. We can have single-payer Medicare for all. We can have a federal jobs guarantee. We can live in a world where our bodily autonomy isn't always on the chopping block. We can move to an economically empowered society where working class people have a voice and full and uh, equal representation. And we can live in a world where corporations don't hold the power over us. So in order to get there, I need your support. I need your grassroots, small dollar donations. Recurring is great. Um, you've done so much already to power this campaign. We have a path to victory. Stay on board with me. We're fighting together. You're on this team. Thank you so much. Um, and my website is laurenashcraft.com. You can follow me at Vote Ashcraft. And I'm so excited to stay connected and partner with each and every one of you. Perfect. Anthony, tell us what we can do to help your campaign. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we're all here. I love every one of you that's here with us today. You know, send a love to everyone that's out there. Uh, but we're all here because essentially we recognize that we can no longer meet our communities and the Democratic Party where they are. You know, we have to engage in efforts to systemically move our community and Democratic Party to where they need to be. Uh, far left is actually bringing us home. Uh, you know, I'm a teacher. In my 11 years of teaching, I've lost 12 students to gun violence in the Chicago, in the Chicagoland area. Uh, we are all struggling out here. High levels of unemployment, uh, lack of a livable wage, homelessness. In Chicago alone, we have thousand individuals that are homeless climate change how it disproportionately impacts brown and black bodies uh, the criminal justice system how black and brown individuals continue to be disproportionately represented in what i believe is slavery by new name we are all out here struggling we truly are 
But the one thing I understand is when we dare to struggle, we win. And we win with Medicare for all. We win with the Green New Deal. We win with homes guarantee. We win with a livable wage, a federal jobs guarantee. All these interconnected issues need and require interconnected solutions. Because I guarantee you when we create opportunity, you will also see gun violence drop. You will also see mental health issues drop. So again, when we dare to struggle, we dare to win. My name is Anthony Clark. I'm a public high school teacher, nonprofit director, small business owner, and I'm running for Congress in Illinois Congressional District. You can check us out at www. I laugh. I always say that because my students, they tell me, you're so old. Nobody says www anymore. <laughs> but www.voteanthonyclark.com. Go on our website. Uh, we need individuals to volunteer, whether that be phone banking or canvassing. If you have a dollar to spare, don't buy Takis, don't buy Flipknots, donate for a movement. We need that dollar. Uh, so again, voteanthonyclark.com and our social media accounts on Instagram and Twitter are Anthony Clark 20. Uh, we keep speaking truth to power and we should love everybody. You know, so again, I'm going to end it with a quote uh, that I think ties in to this class struggle that we're in. And it's from Martin Luther King. He essentially says we may have all come here on different ships, but we're on the same boat now. Uh, so we're in this together. This is an intersectional movement. And I thank everybody for the role that they play in this movement. All power to the people. Absolutely. And Joshua, what, we, what can we do to help put you over the edge? I know you're running against three other corporate Democrats. How can we help your campaign? Uh, well, I guess the first thing, if you are um, in need of a college internship um, or high school internship, um, we do have an internship program. Um, and you can do remote or in-district um, participation for that. Um, so if you want to do that, you can uh, sign up at joshua2020.com slash intern. Um, if you sign up on our website to volunteer, uh, you can also join our Discord. Our Discord server has, uh, I think, like 1,400 people in it. Um, and you can join that and you know, help uh, you know, with the digital aspect of it, regardless of where you are in the country. Um, and if you are in or near uh, the Olympia Tacoma area, definitely sign up at joshua2020.com slash volunteer. Um, and yeah, uh, donations are great. Um, you know, we get a lot of small dollar donations. So, uh, even if you want to donate our most common amount, which is $4 and 20 cents, then, uh, you know, you could, that would be greatly appreciated. So, um, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, our race is a really strong one. Our primary is not until, uh, like early August. So we have a lot of time and we're already in such a strong position. Um, I never thought we would be like the front runner at this point, but you know, we are, uh, we've, we've so far have the most money, definitely the most volunteers and it's not even close. Um, and, uh, a lot of really big endorsements. We have, um, uh, our revolution national endorsed us, um, our revolution Pierce County and Thurston County and Washington state. Um, and then we have Olympia DSA. We have the, um, Washington youth climate strike endorsement. Um, and that'll be, announced soon but i guess you guys can hear here first um yeah and we you know we've been getting a lot of support um sign up to volunteer uh number th number one thing we need is volunteers knock doors phone bank text bank um and you can help with organizing from anywhere in the country so, that's perfect 2020.com there you go all right perfect and jen what can we do to help you um, yeah, so um, kind of the same thing as everyone else. We are August 18th primary, so we also are a late primary. 
and um, it is a closed primary. So we need everyone to be aware of that. And we are Florida's 23rd district and we need volunteers as well. And, you know, people can text bank from anywhere. So people can sign up and volunteer on our website, which is gen2020.com. And we are also Instagram and Twitter at genfl23. And we, you know, we advertise, we ask for $23 a month for district 23, 23 for 23. So that's a common price point that we get for monthly donors, which is very appreciated. And we are, like I said before, seeking a field director. So uh, if anybody out there has experience and is interested in um, helping us out, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, we would very much appreciate them getting in touch with our campaign. All right. That's perfect. And Isaiah, what can we do to help you win? I feel like uh, this is the, the closing statement of a presidential debate. So I'll give in our statement. I mean, I'm, when I hear and I think about it, I mean, all of us are, are, we're doing a little more than just running for Congress. All of us are actually trying, trying to change the system, not just reform it. We're trying to dismantle it, in a sense. And if you look back to our nation's history, Slavery was a system that existed for hundreds of years before somebody stood up and decided to change it. Jim Crow was a system that stood for almost 100 years before people stood up and tried to change it, and they did. And now we have corporate dollars that have infested our body politic. And the old cliche is true. If you follow the money, that's why we're all running, because all of our members of Congress are bought and paid for. And in doing so, they have forgotten the people they were elected to serve. And in doing so, people are struggling to survive. They're not even keeping their heads above water. They are flat, they're drowning. And this is not hyperbole. This is not me trying to sound boisterous. This is real. Folks are dying out there. And all of us can no longer, we, we decided we can no longer sit back and allow it to happen. If it takes us one, two, ten times, we must break this system that has infected our body politics. So anybody out there who's listening, if you can spare a few bucks, like literally, we get donations for a dollar. That dollar means something to me. That's another palm card we can buy to hand out to a voter. That's another can, a slice of pizza we can buy for one of our volunteers. That, that goes to a shirt, a campaign shirt or a button that we can hand out to somebody for coming and help us with the campaign. So if you can spare anything, anything, if you can make it reoccurring, that's even better. If you live, you know, in the New York City area or in the tri-state area, you want to volunteer for the campaign, our website is Isaiah for Congress, I-S-I-A-H, for congress.com, all the same social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you can't donate, because I'm just as broke as you guys, you can always follow and retweet and share and help amplify the message because the more people we get our message in front of, the, the more powerful that message is. And we're not going to beat the machine piecemeal. We have to come at this as a collective. We have to come at this together. So again, Mike, I thank you for having me on, having all of us on, giving us a platform to speak when traditional media at first wouldn't do it. And I want to thank your viewers for all the support that they've given my campaign and all the other campaigns out there. And I look forward to their continued support. Our primary is June 23rd of this year. And I'll come back on after I win my primary and tell you how we're going to win the general. 
Perfect. Donna, how about you? Last but not least, because your primary is coming up really, really soon. Um, tell us when that is one more time and what we can do to help you win that. Yeah, so our primary is March 3rd and early voting for primary is February 18th, literally three weeks away. We need all the help we can get. So if you can donate, please donate because I'm a first time candidate and people just need to know my name and that they have a choice. I'm also the only candidate in this district, North Austin, that's unequivocally running on Medicare for all. But if there's one thing I want you to remember about this campaign is that I am proposing a solution to accelerate Medicare for all faster than the proposal today that's in Congress. And, and I think we can bring it much faster than the timeline that's there. So if you believe in that message, then please support our campaign. If you can't donate, you can volunteer from anywhere in the country. We need folks to help us phone bank. We need folks to knock on doors. If you're in district, please reach out to us. We need you. We have 500 yard signs, you know, sitting there waiting to be delivered. <laughs> People have already requested them and we could use the help in any way, shape, or form. I'm also one of the candidates that's running on Real Pay for All, a proposal that is above and beyond the living wage, saying that you shouldn't just be able to get by, but you should be able to save to put a down payment on a home, and you should be able to retire with dignity and peace and financial security. So if you believe in this message, please go to our website, votefordonna.com, send us any donation every single dollar matters and there is no campaign in this district that's going to stretch your dollar the way we are we're effectively using every single dollar to touch the most number of people so we've strategized we've built an algorithm on who to target how to go after them in the most efficient way and last but not the least if you want to join our campaign we're looking for people to come join not just as a volunteer, but we're also looking for a great, you know, field folks, great management folks, event folks. So around the country, come here. Let's flip Texas 31 blue. Let's take a nine-term Trumper out of office and show them that it doesn't matter where you go. When we flip Texas, the message is reverberating across the country, and we can do this. So votefordonna.com. Well, thank you all so much for coming on the program once again. Thank you for the updates to your campaign. I'm sure that we will be in touch. But if I don't see you uh, by the time you're in Congress, then know that we will not become demobilized. We'll still support you when you're in Congress. And hopefully the next time that I talk about your campaigns, it will be covering you as a member of Congress. You know, hopefully, you know, shooting down something that Fox News said or the establishment did. Um, we're here all the way to the end and we're in this together. And thank you all so much for running for Congress and doing this. To all of my viewers, I would encourage you to chip in to support all of these great candidates. And if you live in one of these states in their areas, please sign up to, uh, to volunteer, to phone bank, to text bank. It's not as scary as it seems initially, and you do get over that fear fast, and it can become quite addicting once you start phone banking, and you kind of realize that it's it's actually relatively 
relatively easy to convince people to get out to vote. They just need to know that there's someone out there who's fighting for them. So thank you all once again so much. Um, for those of you at home watching this, I appreciate your viewership. Uh, please find a way to get involved, even if it's just as little as retweeting these candidates, because any little contribution is a down payment to a better future. And I know that sounds corny, but it's true. It really is. So thank you all so much. Well, that's all that I've got for you all today. Thank you so much for tuning in if you've made it this far in the episode. As usual, we're not going to end the show without thanking all of the individuals who make this possible. That is our Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members. Thank you all so much for helping us not just to uh, survive, but really thrive as well, and I truly mean that. And also, shout out to the people who can't afford to support the show, but do their part in terms of like sharing and liking the videos. That genuinely means the world to me. And also, thank you to all of our guests, six fantastic candidates who we are all rooting for, obviously. So, that's that. Um, this new week of politics, for most of you who will be seeing it, is going to be uh, make or break. And I am excited, but I'm anxious. And I, um, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to see the results of these elections. But for those of you who are seeing this, who are non-members, we're going to see uh, very soon. So, um yeah. I'll see you all next week. My name is Mike Figueredo. This is The Humanist Report. Take care, everyone.